and good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are on this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, and I think I lost my music. Well, that's, hopefully that's not a harbinger of what, what's going to be coming tonight. Uh, you're on The Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard Z. Oakland. And we have a very interesting program um, planned for this evening, uh, full starts in uh, theme music notwithstanding. Uh, but before we get to our guests and the subject of the evening, which I will uh, let you know right up front, is going to be a very murky trail across the wilds and wilderness and mountains of Afghanistan. How come Afghanistan became so important for American society and American culture. Well, that's one of the things that we're going to be discussing tonight with our uh, good friend and resident historian, Dr. Richard Spence. But in the meantime, um, let me get to a couple of news items. The one thing I can say tonight is that I'm very glad that we are not in um, Louisiana or in Mississippi or Tennessee or Georgia or any of those uh, uh, southeastern states tonight because a major class four hurricane came ashore this afternoon, uh, a few hours ago, just afternoon local time. And it's been acting kind of peculiar. It took a very long time, like six, seven hours for it to recede from a cat four down to the current strength, which is a cat two. Now the difference between a cat four and a cat two is 25 miles hour wind speed <clears throat> that's all cat 2 is 125 cat 4 is 150 um, this is really interesting because the winds did not die and the hurricane has persisted to be very organized and it's still an extraordinarily dangerous storm so if anyone is listening to us in the soggy southeast tonight pay very close attention to your weather advisories I hope you have migrated away from low ground, the winds, and the rain. The rain is going to be ferocious. I've seen estimates between 12 and 20 inches in the next uh, 24 hours. So if you are in a low-lying area, but you're not where the storm surge could get you, which could be up to 15 feet along the coast, and it's still coming ashore because the winds are very, very strong, and that counterclockwise circulation. Anyway, it's a very bad night, not just in Georgia, but in the, um, uh, you know, American Southeast. So for God's sake, if you can get to high ground, if you're, if you're late, 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 late leaving, if it's dark, dark where you are, if the power has gone out, please be careful. And tomorrow, when the storm has passed, don't go outside and step on any, you know, hot wires. A lot of people you know, get killed after hurricanes because it's not the wind and many times it's not the water. It's people's stupidity after the storm when they think it's all clear and they go out and they fry themselves in a high tension line. They also try uh, driving through uh, standing water on streets and roads. That's also a very dumb idea. So be very careful because we, uh, we want you to remain in our very extensive worldwide listening audience. So item number one, if you want to kind of see some comparisons between Ida and this 
incredible coincidence, 16 years uh, to the day since Katrina and back in 2005, you might want to check out item number one in my section. Um, This is kind of a comparison side by side with statistics and some interesting history and kind of will give you some more context for what's going on in Louisiana tonight. And again, um, I, I should say that we are actually having the beginnings of a major thunderstorm here. We're in the monsoon season and we're having lightning very close to the house. So if I disappear, uh, Keith is going to be taking over and uh, just uh, suffice to say that I'm 99.999% of the, you know, sure I'm going to be all right, but we may lose power because this is a very old house and it doesn't like bad weather. I can guarantee you that from experience. Item number two in Radio Pictures, um, we've got an article there from The Guardian from someone was, who was in Kabul when it fell to the Taliban a couple weeks ago. And he describes his first-person experiences and uh, the speed of the collapse, which shocked everyone. And that's some of the background that we're going to be getting into tonight when we bring uh, Dr. Spence on the air. There's an extraordinary amount uh, of information and background on Afghanistan that Americans, even after 20 years of being there, are apparently quite unaware of. And uh, the speed of the return of the country to Taliban rule after we announced with great fanfare we were leaving is part of that cultural background which I think is very important for us to uh, take into account. And so we will be doing that for the rest of the morning. Item number three, this is something which is really interesting and could be an harbinger of positive things to come. The last several days, there have been very important negotiations going on in the background regarding the, uh, oh, that was lightning, regarding the, um, Uh, Taliban uh, in control of Afghanistan and all of the people who helped us during the war, Afghanis, as well as Americans and employers and um, uh, independent uh, non-governmental organizations that were part of our occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, A lot of those people still have not left and they want to leave. And so apparently in the last day or so, announced this morning, 97 other countries have announced that we have a deal with the Taliban to keep excavating allies, uh, Afghanis and other nationals and Americans, green card holders, um, non-governmental organization employees, all those folks. Um, We have an agreement, we are told, to continue evacuating these people after August 31st, after Tuesday, which of course is the end of our agreed stay in terms of the uh, Trump administration's negotiation with the Afghanistan uh, Taliban. And so we will see. But uh, again, the details of this are going to be um, uh, part of our discussion this morning. And in the third hour, given the position now of women and girls in Afghan society run once again by the Taliban. Uh, We're going to be adding um, uh, Georgia Lambert to our conversation. And um, I think she has some very interesting 
insights that we will benefit uh, from hearing when when she arrives. Item number four. Uh, this is a very sad note. Um, I've been a fan of Ed Asner for decades since, uh, well, since the Lou Grant um, participation in the Mary Tyler Moore show. And unfortunately, last night at the ripe old age of 91, Ed Asner passed away quietly. And we, uh, we wish him well. We are sad and sorry for the family, of course. But if you want to take a look at some of his achievements in uh, television, in film, uh, take a look at item number four. Um, it's particularly interesting the way they treat his uh, experience on Mary Tyler Moore and how his uh, role as the bluff and gruff um, station manager of uh, you know his uh, the station there in uh, Minneapolis uh, turned into its own television series called Lou Grant, where he played the um, managing editor of a major uh, Los Angeles newspaper, a fictional newspaper. And they actually, I think, I think Ed Asner from his total career accrued something like nine Emmys, um, majority of them for Mary Tyler Moore, but I think at least four of them were for the uh, Lou Grant show. So uh, Ed, Godspeed. Well, as I said at the top of the show, our guest this morning is, uh, is going to be very interesting, and our conversation is going to be very, very, what should I say, complicated? Because we're dealing with this astonishing place, which I guarantee you most Americans know far less about than in some cases they know about the moon, and that is the country of Afghanistan. Oh, that lightning was very close. Um, so without further ado, let me bring on my guest of the morning, Dr. Richard Spence. Richard, are you there? I am here. There you are. Okay. Yeah, if I disappear, um, I have not been beamed up. It's that the weather tonight okay. is very, very strange. Uh, it might even be the periphery of the vast cyclonic storm that is uh, Ida. I mean, when these these currents and vortices disturb the lower atmosphere. Uh, they can extend far more than just a few, you know, tens of miles across for the eye. They actually can be hundreds and sometimes almost a thousand miles across. So maybe the weather tonight here, which is pretty bad, has been triggered by the weather over the Gulf and over uh, Louisiana, which is frankly much worse. So without further ado, Rick, why don't we know, why don't Americans know more about a place that we have lived in, that we have occupied, that we have supported, that has been part of our uh, almost daily conversation for over a generation, this remote, distant place called Afghanistan? Well... I guess one thing to say is that I, I'm, I'm not quite sure that that would be true, that it's been part of the daily conversation. If you are a, an American contractor or you're in the American military or you're an American diplomat or you're an American with an NGO that's in Afghanistan, then it's part of your daily reality. I mean, you, you have to deal with the place, whether you're in Kabul or whether you're somewhere out in a forward operating base or in one of, one of, the, one of the provincial cities. But the point is, is that for 20 years, let's face it, for the vast majority of Americans, 
almost nobody other than those who might have a loved one doing some kind of service in Afghanistan are going to give it a single thought during the course of the day. You know, every now and then there will be a television program or a newspaper or a magazine article that will talk about, ah, we've been in Afghanistan for a really long time. How are things going there? I don't know. Is the situation improving? Is it deteriorating? Uh, again, every now and then, the government will either announce a, draw, a drawdown. American troops are they're reducing the troop levels. Oh, no, no, we're increasing the troop levels. But now we're going to decrease them again, or we're going to increase them again. But it really just kind of shows up incrementally. So I think that for most people, for the vast majority of the population, Afghanistan during a 20-year period sort of would intrude occasionally upon whatever sort of reverie they were in. And that, I really think, is the key point. I noticed that most people never really thought about it most of the time. It was easy to forget it was there. Hmm. Well, but isn't that kind of the way that Americans treat most other nations? We're incredibly insular. I mean, by any standards, when you talk to even young people from other countries, they seem to know far more about the world than our folks do. Well, that may have to do with their public education, <laughs> where they actually learn things like maybe like geography. Um, uh, we don't want to get me started on something else, but remember, I'm an historian, not a geographer. But one of the things is often important. No, 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 no. We, 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 Rick, Rick, no, we, we have yeah. three, we have three hours, and you know, I'm a kind of a poly, whatever, which means I like these little canyons we go down. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that, that one of the common, what would often strike me among students over a period of 40 years in, in higher education, dealing with college students for 40 years, and what was one of the takeaways from that? Well, a lot of people, you know, a certain number of people were very well informed about where they were positioned on the planet at any one given time. But for the most part, I was continuously amazed at how little awareness people seem to have about where they were in juxtaposition to anything else. So um, it, it reminds me of a uh, – here's, here's a story that would go with it. There was a fellow I knew years ago who um, was traveling in Europe, that kind of thing they had then. It's still now called a Eurail Pass, and the whole thing. Oh, I, I know those, get, yeah, yeah. Get a hold of a Eurail Pass. Well, he was actually in Eastern Europe, and there was some sort of you – know, this was back during the Cold War period, and he had some sort of Eastern European equivalent of a Eurail Pass. And what he was doing is that he was using it to sleep on the train. So he would travel between <laughs> different cities at night, so he would save in a hotel. He would simply buy his transportation. He would sleep on the train. But he wasn't always sure where it was that he would, he would wake up. Uh-huh. And, and so one morning he woke up. And he looked out the window, and he saw a sign in the station they were in, and it said, Krosnik Wabelski. <laughs> okay. Now, I can bet you that most people listening, or most people anywhere, even all people in Poland, which by the way is where he was, wouldn't necessarily know where Krosnik Wabelski was. But he did. Oh, my God. And I mean, there was a, there, there was a kind of momentary panic, because it was like, I don't know where have I where have I been you know where where am I but then he began to think and he goes that name looks familiar and he realized he was in Poland in fact he realized that he was in south himself on on this this kind of mental map and you may wonder how was he able to do that and his explanation was I always kept an atlas in the bathroom 
Ah. So his <laughs> reading was... And I would read the... And he, he was one of those people who was a kind of, you know, a map freak. He's always looking at maps. And, and the thing is, is that I guess I kind of understand that because I'm probably one of those two. I, I really like looking at maps, old maps, new maps, whatever. And it's, but it's, it's one of those kind of values that many people really seem to have lost. <laughs> so when he found and, himself, and, when he found himself in one of those, in, in case of fire, break glass, he was prepared. He was prepared simply because he'd taken the time, you know, and that, now true, that's, that's something that most people probably wouldn't find themselves in, but it can be, you know, one of, one of the values people might come up, well, you know, why study maps? You know, why know where Paraguay is? Well, because one morning you might wake up in Paraguay. Who knows? <laughs> and then at least you know you know where you are. And but I was often just amazed at how little knowledge people see. You know, people who'd gone through high school and graduated somewhere. Okay, they they weren't going to get into college if they hadn't done it. But who seemed to have, you know, there was America, Canada was above us. And and most of them could place Mexico to the south, hmm. uh, but that's about it. And, and and the rest of it was all pretty vague. Europe was at the end of a long plane flight from New York. They knew that. <laughs> that was about what we get there. So the further you get out of the, the people would often travel. But uh, you know, if you're traveling to a place or if you you've been there, you have some kind of awareness for it. But you know, again, why would uh, you know most people? Most people wouldn't give much of a thought to Afghanistan unless it somehow intruded through the news or through some kind of personal connection. It, it practically speaking, didn't exist to them. You know, we all have other things to do during the day than to think about Afghanistan. And so what's, what's so weird is you don't now have to keep an atlas in the bathroom. We have something called the Google machine. And I would yes. think with extraordinary amount of blood and treasure – and and you know metaphysical energy that we've expended on on this place called Afghanistan over 20 years a lot of people just because of family relationships you know the kids in the family went and served in Afghanistan that kind of thing you'd think more people would know and I've I've, I've actually tested this almost nobody can even find it on a map. No, because the only way you can't find it on a map is if you never look at a map. <laughs> that, that's it. And, and, and true, maps have probably never been more widely or easily available to people than ever before. And yet, oddly enough, I don't, I don't think geographical knowledge is uh, going through any kind of significant increase. So, for instance, when I would teach um, a course, let's say, on, on Middle Eastern history, which I, I taught a course on Middle Eastern history, and so one of the first things we'd start out with was just going over, okay, Here's the Middle East. It's not really east or in the middle of anything. But <laughs> nevertheless, that's what it is. That we, that's what we call it. Well, you know, it's to the east of something, but it's to the north, south. And, yeah. So the Middle East is this, is, embraces this very large area. And, but we just would start out by going, okay, we'll start over to the west with Morocco. That's, that's certainly not the east of anything, but we're going to count it in because we're really talking about an area that has more to do with history than culture, than geography. And then go across, and at the opposite end, you know, once you've gone through Morocco and Algeria and Egypt and Syria and then down to the Arabian Peninsula and over to Persia, once you keep going, my eastern, the eastern boundary. So when are we going to stop? We're going to stop when we get to Afghanistan. Hmm. I, think we skipped over, I think we skipped over Tunisia. 
Well, there's Tunisia. <laughs> that, you know, there's, you know. See? It, Abu, it, Abu Dhabi. Yes. Yeah. But you see, you knew that we skipped over Tunisia. That's right. There you go. And Libya as well. <laughs> but it was sort of go through it. So Afghanistan was always at the, the kind of eastern edge. So one of the ways I would approach it, there's a, when we talk about the Middle East, there's a kind of core area. And the core area is, again, basically Egypt, Syria, Israel, Iraq, Arabia, that kind of central region. And then there are the peripheral areas that, that spread out. And Afghanistan is one of those, one of those in the east. But could, it could this uh, doesn't be have part, a seacoast. Rick, could, could this, in yeah. part, Rick, be more cultural than geographical? Because one of the commonalities of all those nations is they're all, uh, you know, Islamic societies. Yes, and then that's that's really when you talk about the Middle East, you're talking you're talking about Islamic Eurasia, and it's a that Middle East becomes our. I mean, the, the old term for it, the term actually that the French who came up with this, it was the Near East, and the Near East meant you know. The stuff that's not quite as far away as Siberia or China. Okay, China and Japan, that's the Far East because you have to get in a boat and just sail forever before you get to those places. But see, the Near East, well, you know, you could uh, walk out of your Paris apartment. If you just kept walking, you'd eventually be there. Hmm. So, but the, but the definition of what the Near East was also changed. So when the, when the Ottoman Empire, when the Islamic Turkish Ottoman Empire ruled the Balkans – then places like Bulgaria and Albania and Greece were considered to be part of the Near East. But then when those gained their independence from the Ottoman Empire, then they became part of Eastern Europe, while Turkey still remains. Remember how Turkey today, there's, the, the effort is, you know, is Turkey part of the Middle East or is it part of Europe? Right? Is, it, is it part of the Middle East? Or is it, well, part of it is geographically in Europe, a little part of it. Most of it is geographically in what we call Asia, but those are just terms we sort of invented. Um, the geography doesn't matter that much, but it's much more important in, in terms of Turkey as to whether it sees itself as part of Europe or whether it sees itself as part of this larger, essentially Islamic Middle East. And that, that's that's another Topic for another evening. In fact, I think we probably talked about some of it before, but modern Turkey is going through a kind of identity crisis of having moved much closer to Europe through most of the 20th century. It now is somewhat moving away or at least trying to to separate itself from a kind of European identity. Mm. NATO, of course, notwithstanding. Yes, NATO notwithstanding. <laughs> so let's go back. We've got about 10 minutes before the bottom of the hour. Let's start at sure. the very, 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 very beginning. Okay. Because when I look at the so goal. Wanna... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, my question. Well, what I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you go, Richard. After, there you go. That's it. After you, Alphonse. Go ahead. I was going to start with, a, with one of those proverbs, you know, an old proverb. So this this particular, I don't know, it's not a proverb, it's a saying, it's an old saying. I've never heard anybody say it's an Afghan saying. I've heard it described either as an Arab saying or as a Persian saying, which means it somehow comes out of the Middle East. So it's applicable to Afghanistan, uh, and, and I think it, it, it does, you know, it, it, I think it fits in, it resonates in other ways as well. And it goes like this, and this is what I want people who are listening to remember as we go on this evening. 
I against my brother, my brother and I against our cousin, my brother, my cousin, and I against the outsider. Hmm. Now, there you've got Middle Eastern politics 101. I was going to say that kind of sums up the whole show. Well, folks, that's been uh, Dr. Richard Spence tonight. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate his contributions to our conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's like you, you basically said it all because what I'm going to bring to the table later on in the morning, I hope, when we get Georgia, is I do not think that the extrapolations of current Afghanistan as dire and negative and, and you know, catastrophic as they have been are necessarily grounded in um, – What's that term they they uh, they use in geopolitics? Uh, ground truth, or you know the uh, the scene of the whatever. In other words, I I I I just can't imagine that we Americans, who have used to be known as you know the ugly Americans, that we have been in Afghanistan culturally. Look at all these people that we've influenced. Look at all these people that we've tried uh, now to to bring out who were part of our experiment in in nation building i can't imagine we could spend 20 years there and not have some kind of peripheral or even more direct influence on that particular saying meaning that we may have left the culture at a cultural level not militarily but culturally in a different space almost than that saying would uh, portend well, we'd like to think so, but I don't know. Old habits are old for a reason. But let's just let's just keep that saying in mind. I mean, that that's certainly what has guided things up to this point. But the other initial point we can bring in before the break is that you've got this entity, this political state called Afghanistan. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you go to Afghanistan and you go from one end to the other, from north to south to east to west, the one thing that you will never find in an ethnic sense is that you will never find a tribe or physical community of people who are called Afghans. Hmm. There is no ethnicity. There is no group of people with a particular Afghan culture. There are Pashtuns and Tajiks and Hazaras and Uzbeks and Aymaks and Turkmans and Baluks and, I don't know, a couple of dozen others in small amounts, but no Afghans. That itself is a kind of interesting thing that maybe we can look at is where did the country get its name? Why are there no Afghans in Afghanistan? And if there aren't any Afghans, who lives there? Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Sorry, I have to do something here. Housekeeping. This is real-time radio, folks. So, okay. Um, why, do you, why do you think that is? In other words, the reason that we failed, quite sure I would use that term except as an example for the moment, is because there's, there was no national identity, uh, cultural, Afghanistani, um, uh, you know, context or, uh, you know, uh, people I, I basically identifying with a larger whole than their brother, 
their cousin and the other. Well, to your brother, your cousin, one of the important things about it is the importance of family. And family as part of a clan, clan as part of a tribe, tribe as part of an ethnic community. And while those, the very things that bind people together are the things that can separate them. And, for instance, the bonds of, bonds of family are probably the strongest that you can find among human beings anywhere. I mean, uh, people uh, fundamentally, what, why, why more than anything else. Well, why yeah. don't we hold it there because we are at the bottom of the hour. I'm sure. having some problem with my clocks. Gosh, what else can happen? <laughs> you're, on, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we are going to be discussing rather extensively and hopefully in some depth this concept, this notion of Afghanistan. And although they're, they're, even if there, I'll get my words straight momentarily, even if there is no national Afghani identity, there is music. And so what we're going to be doing is dipping in tonight to some Afghan music by some very famous Afghanis. This is from a guy named Daya Beta. Uh, recorded back in 2014. So enjoy. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Here is genuine Afghan music. We shall return. funny because I think you know I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this whereas now you can't do that there's no such thing so what you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves people are too frightened it's like you know I want to say something but if what if I use the wrong term but I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and 
of white actors and, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting and they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grasping on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back, everyone. This Sunday night, August 29th, 2021. Uh, the rain appears to, uh, well, the lightning at least is kind of decreased. So looks like we might actually get through another whole show. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. And we're delving into this arcane, rather fascinating thing in front of us that none of us have, have really delved deeply into, even after 20 years. Namely... Afghanistan. Music in the background, of course, is uh, Afghani music, and we're going to be dipping in and out of that during the morning. Uh, Richard, um, how did a, 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 a group of tribes and families with these very different cultural identities, even if they seem to have one unifying religion, namely Islam, how did they wind up becoming you know, a kind of a nation in any sense of the word at any time, because it's almost like the classic, uh, you know, uh, Hatfield and McCoy shotgun wedding. Who shot them, shotgun them together to form a nation, which if the last couple of three weeks is any uh, indication is not very much of a nation. Well, you know, it's like, how did you wake up one morning and become an Afghani? So or how, how, did, how did a particular people find themselves in there? So it goes back to this question of this, this puzzle I sort of played, is that you've got a nation called Afghanistan with no actual group of people in it who are ethnically Afghanis. There isn't, there, so there is an Afghan nationality, and that's existed since 1823. So let's, I'm going to throw out a lot of dates. Nobody has to remember them. There will not be a test afterwards. That's just like yesterday. But, 
when when Afghanistan, when that name first is is connected to a country, to a political state, that's 1823. So no, it is not ancient. Now, the people who were who found, woke up one morning in 1823 and didn't know it yet, but were now living in something called the Emirate of Afghanistan, oh. were the same people whose ancestors had been living there for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. So for all the hundreds or thousands of years that they lived in the same place, in the same valley, in the same mountains for centuries or millennia without being Afghans, now because a ruler, a warlord, basically in Kabul, had proclaimed himself the emir of Afghanistan, they were Afghanis. And thus the nation was born. But one of the reasons why that name was chosen in part for the name of the Emirate was specifically because it didn't exactly refer to any particular ethnic group, although it did kind of. So let me, let me try to explain that. So the question might be is that if there was no group, no group of people in Afghanistan called Afghans, then where did that name come from? Well, the best explanation that can come up with is that it's the same reason in a sense that we talk about a people in Europe called Germans. Mm-hmm. We talk about a country called Germany. We always refer to them that way. And yet, I'm sure, as many people know, the Germans don't call themselves Germans. They're Deutsch, and their country isn't Germany. It's Deutschland. It's just the rest of the world that refers to them by different names. So, by the way, to the French, you know, they're, they're Alemans. <laughs> Uh, and, to the, and to the Spanish, they're Alemans as well. And to you know, the English speakers and Americans, uh, they are Germans. But that's not really what they call themselves at all. And you know, the Deutsch, the Germans, remember, seem to have, have more or less adjusted the idea. But it, it's one of the things to often find is that you'll find whole nations of people who essentially have an international presence under a name that they don't call themselves. So wait, the, wait, wait, the does, secret, does, wait, yeah. wait, wait, doesn't that yeah. get kind of confusing? <laughs> you think so, but somehow we all know. Who, in other words, when when an American talks to Germans about Germans, they know from long experience who he's talking about, even though that's not the name they use for themselves. I think probably a lot of Americans might be confused. You know, the idea that Germans aren't Germans, but but they respond to the name. That's, I think it's kind of readily recognized that on an international basis, that's that's probably the name that they're going to be going to be known by. But it is it, it's a strange. Uh, it's it, it's the way ultimately of sort of seeing yourself or or accepting the name that other people have given you, even though that's that's not your own. So something like that happened in what would become Afghanistan. And the term itself, the best explanation I've heard, and there are, there's more than one, the best explanation is that for a long time, for many of those centuries and millennia before 1823, you know, almost mm-hmm. all of human history, mm-hmm. that area, which is now Afghanistan, was more often than not, it was part of the Persian Empire. Oh, Iran. So, yes, or Iran, so, which historically, you know, is remember, up until 1934, it ain't Iran, it's Persia. Oh, well, that tells me why I found something very interesting this afternoon. Yeah. Because when I was picking music for the breaks, I wanted to, you know, and I, I knew there's not such thing as, quote, Afghan music, 
but there are all kinds mm-hmm. of wonderful cultures in Afghanistan, so we're going to do that. But then I found this incredible overlap with Iran, and that explains yes. it. And probably stuff in the, in the, in the Farsi language. You ever reference to that? Mm-hmm. Okay, Farsi is Persian. Okay, so the, the official language in, in Iran, the, the, the Persian language is Farsi. And Farsi is actually the most widely spoken language in Afghanistan. So again, there's no actual Afghan language. So the most widely spoken language is Farsi, which is Persian, the same language that's spoken in Iran. A different dialect, but mm. it's Farsi. In Afghanistan, it's called Dari. And that was a political decision to call it something. That, that's what happened in the 1960s is that the Afghan king just decided he would try to – it was a gesture to Afghan nationalism. So instead of saying that we mostly speak Farsi, we'll, we'll call it Dari. But everybody knows it's Farsi because it's the same language. So it's – the Persia, there were – historically, there were three different Persian empires. So there was a Persian empire, you know, back the, the Athenian, you know, the, the – uh, uh, the 300 Spartans Persians uh, in the ancient world, and then there were the Sassanid Persians that the Romans fought with all the time, and then there were the Safavid Persians that were a Shiite Muslim dynasty that came in around the 16th century. So during all three of those empires, the Persian Empire generally kind of expanded out to absorb the area that would later become Afghanistan. And when Alexander the Great went around 300 BC, Alexander the Great destroyed the Persian, the first Persian Empire, and marched all the way to India. He marched right through what later became Afghanistan, and apparently he subdued it, or at least he subdued it well enough that he could march his army through and and supply it through that area. And uh, but even then, it was noted that the area was mountainous and inhospitable, and largely inhabited by unfriendly, warlike people. Mm. So <laughs> it, it wasn't easy. He wasn't necessarily greeted uh, with great friendship. I, I was going to say through. it doesn't sound like much has changed. No, <laughs> it's amazing how those things uh, remain consistent. By the way, before we go any further, uh, Rick has yeah. posted a couple of items in. Uh, Radio with pictures, including a map of Afghanistan yes. in the context of other nations around it. And I want to kind of talk about these as a conglomerate because I think they're kind of related. So let's send people to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight banner, which says with that incredible uh, photograph taken by the National Geographic photographer many, many years ago of the Afghani girl looking, you know, terrified into the camera. Uh, it turns out there's a backstory as to why she was terrified. Uh, click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Click on Richard's items, Rick uh, items, I'm sorry. And that will take you to his item number one, which a beautifully colored um, geopolitical map of, I think, Afghanistan. And, it, and it's got all the different colored blobs, yes? <laughs> okay. And surrounding and, and all it, those different – go ahead. To the east, you have Pakistan. Which um, has gone through different changes. So before there was Pakistan, it was part of British India. We'll talk about that. And before it was British India, it was the Sikh Empire. And the question might be, did Afghanistan and its inhabitants have peaceful, friendly, cordial relations with any of those three groups? No, not well, except for the Pakistanis, kind of, um, in the sense of 
common interest in that regard. And mm. to the west of Afghanistan, if you look today, is Iran, uh, formerly known as Persia, and again, uh, a state as an empire in various forms that, that ruled over much of that area. So this is something, something to keep in mind, is that in, in modern-day Iran and in Afghanistan, there are very important historic links. And those links, again, include things like the languages that are spoken. So the main language which is spoken in Iran, Farsi, is the main language which is, or the most widely spoken or people, the language that people are educated in, in that you would find in Afghanistan. So they don't speak a language called Afghani. Um, but, but Farsi is only one of a number of languages because all of those different colored blobs that you see there representing the different ethnic groups, those all have their own languages. Oh so God. some of them might speak, they might speak Farsi, uh, it's, it's one of those – Farsi, in some ways, was for a long time the kind of lingua franca. In other words, it was the language – it was certainly up until the present, from the 19th century, Farsi was the language that an educated person of any ethnicity would likely speak. And it's the language which people who had different languages between themselves would use as a common speech between them. So it means that while it's it's not the the native language to the to most of the population, it was the most influential language. But it's a the term the best that you can kind of come up with is that when the Persians spoke about the area to the far east, if Persians were talking about the way back beyond the eastern borderlands of the empire, the mountains of the Hindu Kush, you know, the mountains you went through before you got to India, that was a term that the Persians seem first to have referred to as the land of the Afghans. Mm. And that seems to have come from a term that they use that comes from a word called Afagana or Afathana which looks a little bit like Afghan, and that, that meant horse breeders. Oh, well, So early on, Persians would talk about, there were, so there were these people who live off in the mountains in the east, and they're horse breeders. And then later, the Persians tended to use Afghan as a term for anyone, any kind of, you know, basically what they were talking about with hicks and semi-barbarians <laughs> that came from the far, from the far edges of the, of the empire. Okay. So that, that was that was the term. So it, 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 Afghan is a term that was kind of adopted as a general descriptor by someone else. It was a term basically that the Persians started using for anybody from that area of the state. So it was kind of you know, like a pejorative uh, yokel. Uh, to some degree, I mean, it, it describes someone from the you know the from the borderlands, so to speak. And you know, if you were in Tabriz or Tehran or any of the you know, cosmopolitan capitals of the Persian Empire, that was probably the back of beyond. But, that's, but it's, a, it's a term that was applied to them by others. But that brings up the question that the Persians seem specifically to have meant that. You know, to them, from the center of the Persian Empire, the peoples who lived out in the far-flung eastern mountainous provinces, nobody really gave a damn about them one way or the other. 
and therefore what languages they spoke or what they looked like or what their local customs were were of no particular interest to the empire. So you would simply use this descriptor to say that all these people from the, from the barbarous eastern provinces, they're all Afghans. Um, because we're just because that's the that's the term that we'll use to to, to describe them, and it's it, it, it's you know you can you can find similar to that. There's a term that's widely used all the way down into Southeast Asia across the Farang, right? Which means Farang. foreigner, basically. Okay. Farang. So if you take a trip to Thailand or elsewhere, you're you're Farang. You're not from there. Ah. And it's largely meant to, to refer to, to Europeans. But what that term actually comes from, and you'll find it all the way across, even from there, even to the Middle East, Farang or Farangi, is that it's, it, it's a corruption of the term for Frank. Okay. So Franks, French, the term that we turned into French, the Franks, which were originally this Germanic tribe that then became the French, that was a term that since many of the, the assumption was that since many of the Western Europeans that people in Syria, Iraq, or elsewhere would come into contact with, uh, or further on would come into contact with, or because of the Crusades in which many of the Crusaders were French, the term Franc or Farang simply came to mean essentially, pretty much it came to mean any kind of Westerner. That, that's what it means, which essentially meant a European. So again, Farang doesn't differentiate as to whether or not you're French or English or Danish or Maltese. It doesn't matter. You're a Westerner. You're some weirdo from outside of the country. You're a Farang. Hmm. Even though there's no real, even though if that term meant French, it, you know, in, in the context of Europe, that would actually only refer to a particular group of people. But elsewhere, it becomes a term that sort of applied a pride, pride excuse me, a pride broadly to people who all, you know, basically are from somewhere else and vaguely look alike. So the, the people that the Persians most applied that term to were the biggest blob on that map, which are the Pashtuns. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about Farsi as being the most, probably the single most widely known language. But if you then look at the area, particularly along the eastern border, you notice there's like this, this large arc of areas that are inhabited by these people called the Pashtuns. Now, for anybody who's read there, um, you'll, you'll recognize them as the Pathans. Okay, so in, in a lot of English literature in the 19th century, Pashtuns, I don't know, I guess the British had a hard time pronouncing it. They're called Pathans, but and they're they're known as the they're the sort of warrior people of the Hindu Kush. Again, anybody who's familiar with Kipling or any story, anybody who's familiar with the history of British India knows that through most of the 19th and the early 20th, all the way up until 1947, the most turbulent area of the British Raj or the British Empire was the thing called the Northwest Frontier the Northwest Frontier Province. And there was, there was always, you know, if you look at Gunga Din, anything else, there are always restive tribes up in the Northwest Frontier. Well, the Northwest, front, front, Northwest Frontier is the border with Afghanistan. That's mm. exactly what that is. And the reason why that area was so restive was that the border that separated Afghanistan 
from India, the same border, by the way, that separates Afghanistan from Pakistan today, is drawn right down the middle, pretty much, between the lands inhabited by the Pashtun people. Okay. So the Pashtun people, if you look at the map, are the kind of light green area. And you notice that along most of the border with Pakistan, you have the light green area, but then you'll notice that there are there are lots of blobs of them up in the north. This whole map kind of looks like camo, which mm. is kind of fitting. <laughs> yes, it does. But, but you'll notice that there are, there are more light green blobs, and, and, and all of those are areas or islands or colonies, so to speak, of the Pashtuns. But here's the other thing. The main thing I want you to get from the map, other than the camo effect, is that there's no, in most cases, really clear lines separating these groups from each other. So the Pashtuns are mostly in the east and the south, and you'll notice that the the Uzbeks, who are the light brown, are mostly in the north, and the Turkmen are in the north, and the Hazaras, who are the dark green, are mostly in the middle, and the Tajiks, who are the dark brown, well, they're mostly up in the north, East, but then there are also islands of them scattered out among the Pashtuns. So it's not like there are different ethnic groups in Afghanistan and everybody has their own province. It doesn't work that way. It means that there are large areas that are inhabited by one group. In other cases, they're mixed together. In other cases, there are islands of one group inside a kind of sea of another. So it's a very mixed situation there aren't there aren't clean lines separating these these different ethnic communities now so when the persians were talking about afghans as far as anybody could tell what what they were mostly talking about were the pashtuns and they would probably most talk about them because the pashtuns of all these different groups were eh, you might get some argument on this but overall they were the most aggressive and warlike so one of the things is they're, they're mountaineers. They, they tended to live, their homeland is in a very mountainous area. And there's one of the things interesting that you tend to find a mountain, around mountain-dwelling people. Uh, and that is true in many different parts of the world, is that they often tend to be, uh, often because they're separated into particular valleys, because the mountains separate them into areas. They often have very strong local or tribal identities. But the other thing very often is that mountain environments tend to be poor environments. They don't produce a lot of resources, which means that one of the things that you find throughout history is that people who lived in highland areas raided people who lived in lowland areas. Hmm. So, well, that was a pretty well simple thing. I mean, where did the Egyptians live? Did they live in mountains? No, <laughs> they lived along a river. Where did all the Babylonians, you know, where did all the cool civilized people live? You know, the ones that built cities and made stuff. They all lived down in the bottomlands next to the river. And if you, if you generally look at this, you'll find that the people who lived in the lowlands down next to the river are always having trouble with the hill people. Because the hill people are always coming down and stealing things or raiding and burning and carrying people off. So that, that's, that's a kind of – and much of it is, is, is just that. It's based upon the kind of raw economics that uh, mountain areas don't produce a lot of resources. And one of the ways in which hill people can get the stuff that they can't make is they can go steal it from the people who live down in the flats. And that meant that one of the reasons why the 
the term Afghan as a reference to the Pashtuns would become widely known all the way over in the capital of the Persian Empire is because the Pashtuns uh, were warlike and they were raiders. Uh, they would raid into the lowland areas of India. They would raid other peoples around them, the Tajiks in particular. The Tajiks tended to be somewhat more settled agriculturalists, and therefore they had stuff. Uh, and therefore, that, that's, that's, that's part of the whole historical dynamic that still exists today between Pashtuns and Tajiks. So among other Afghan peoples, among other peoples like Tajiks and others living in Afghanistan, the Pashtuns have a very old reputation for, uh, for being aggressive, for being um, militant, for basically coming in and taking stuff and, and taking over. It, it, and the, the best example I can give you of that is that every single ruler of Afghanistan, at least up through the monarchy in the 1970s, every emir, every king, oh. well, with the exception of one guy, but he's only around very briefly, and gets killed. And you knock but, them off, yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but all of them, I mean, there, there have been three dynasties that have had people in control of this area, and all of them have been Pashtuns. So, so the Pashtuns are the most, they're the most militant and aggressive, and they tended to hold political power, although they were not the wealthiest, and they were not, by any means, generally the most educated. So even though more people speak Farsi in Afghanistan than speak Pashto simply because Farsi is spoken by Pashtuns and by other peoples, again, as this, as this kind of lingua franca. In, in, in essence, Farsi is naturally the language of the Persian Tajik people, the dark green area. That, that's, that's their language. Hmm. Other people use it as, as a lingua franca, and, and the Pashtuns have done that as well. And, and that was, that's one of the beasts of the Pashtuns, as long their feeling is that uh, their language was seen as a, a language of, of ignorant hillbillies. It didn't have much of a literature for a long time. It didn't get any particular cultural respect. But on the other hand, they ran things. Hmm. They were the – here's – this isn't is, – I'll tell you what, we are, to, yeah, we are at the right. top of the hour. Let's kind okay. of hold it there. This is more uh, – Afghan music from the background that I went and kind of looked at carefully this afternoon. And when we return, we're, I'm going to ask uh, Rick a very interesting question. Who in their right mind ever considered that among all these, shall we say, warring tribes, that you could in fact create one nation? In other words, whose bright idea was it in 1823 to create and Afghanistan. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday, August 29th, 2021. My guest this morning for the next hour, and then we'll be joined by Georgia Lambert, is Dr. Richard Spence, our resident historian. And in trying to make sense of what's going on right now, 7,000 miles away, where people are flying out desperate to evade and avoid the uh, uh, retribution of the Taliban, we're going to get into... Who are they and who created them? Turns out that it's rather intriguing. And it uh, referred to another country that uh, Richard mentioned a few minutes ago. And I won't want to give away the surprise because it turns out that uh, Afghanistan is kind of like a Chinese puzzle box. It's uh, a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle and a puzzle. So, uh, Richard, let me ask this question. Um, Who in their right mind thought it was a good idea to take and try to unite all these warring factions and tribes and anti-cousins and whatever into some semblance of one nation. Well, I don't think anybody who initially did that, you can say that who, who was basically responsible for it? Um, tribal warlords. We'll, we'll name a few of them. But that's how you, you have a fellow who uh, came out on top in a military struggle. And the way that you become emir or king or ruler of Afghanistan is still the same. The way the game is played is that you capture Kabul, right? Okay. If you capture Kabul. I mean, notice, and, and the Taliban are the same thing. You know, uh, the, you know, the provincial capitals were falling, but it was when they reached Kabul, that's where, okay, they, they had claimed the capital and therefore they were the rulers they had they they grabbed the the brass ring, okay? They they grasped that, and that's that's essentially how someone became or maintained themselves as the ruler of what was called Afghanistan. You took Kabul, uh, and having established a your control of Kabul, which was recognized as the single most important cent the center of political power, then you extended your control as best you could over cities like Kandahar and Herat and Mazari Sharif and Kunduz and others. But Kabul was the only one that really mattered because possession of that city was seen as the, the test of, of political authority. So every rebellion, every civil war 
and there are lots of them in Afghanistan's history, always revolves around somebody marching on Kabul, and the person who would seize it, usually over the body of the person they're overthrowing, then became the new ruler. So what that means is that nobody ever formed Afghanistan with the idea of creating a nation. That, that was never, never the concept. So let me go back just, just a minute to I was, I was going to give a, a, a kind of rough comparison with another country that probably most of the listeners are more familiar with, and that's the United Kingdom. United Kingdom of England, Scotland, Wales, and, and Northern Ireland, mm, right? That should be an interesting so comparison. We, we usually here's, – here's the interesting thing that we do. We usually somehow to, – to many Americans, English and British are essentially the same thing. I mean, those are terms that are used pretty much interchangeably. Mm -hmm. If you talk about the English, you're talking about the British. If you're talking about the British, you're talking about the English. Yet the English are only the largest ethnic component of the British. So remember, if you look at the United Kingdom, it is most prominently you've got England, which is the largest component, and, and the English are far more numerous than everybody else put together. And then to the north, you've got the Scots, and then you've got the Welsh, and then you've still got some Irish, the, the Northern Irish. And you know, at the beginning of the century, Ireland itself was all a part of that. And I don't want to leave them out. I'm sure some of them – and the Manx. <laughs> okay. Oh, the Manx. yes, yes. Okay. Yes, the little hammocks of the Isle of Man because it's – so Manx is a separate thing. Uh, I once made the mistake of referring to someone who was from the Isle of Man as English, and they immediately corrected me. See, that'll tell you. They immediately corrected me that they weren't English, that they were Manx. Now, and then they promptly tried to cut off my tail. In, in what we consider to be a modern, cosmopolitan, Western country, I mean, to put it another way, what we consider a civilized country – here you but you still notice that these tribal divisions remain. So for instance, you know, if if you go to Britain today and you cross the border from England into Scotland, you are in many ways in a different country. There are different laws. There is a different culture. The language is spoken quite differently. But most importantly, there's an awareness of the difference. That is, it's that you know, the, the border between England and Scotland is a real thing. Okay. It, it marks the beginning of, of, of another territory. Uh, Wales is, is a set. So however long and however successfully and generally profitably pretty much for everybody, mostly for the English, but, but for the most part, generally profitably that these different groups have existed together, we could ask ourselves, do residual hostilities and tensions remain between Scots, English, Welsh, and Irish? You bet they do. Now, they don't boil over into open warfare. Well, except in northern anyway. and southern Ireland. For yeah, except in northern Ireland. But, uh, I mean, England and Scotland fought wars for, for centuries between the two. Um, and it's uh, – and there are, there are, you know, Scots that I've talked to who consider to be the English, you know, uh, imperialistic colonizers. You know, their, their, their idea – this is a guy who was, by the way, a, an Oxford graduate – which is in England, but he basically said that he considered the, the, the English to be conquerors. Huh. Right. Okay, that they that they had they had conquered it, and that the Scots were a subjugated people, and that the English, you know, there was nothing against them personally, but they were simply conquerors and colonizers. <laughs> it would ruin Scotland. Hmm. Now, 
that just gives you an idea that often when you look closely at countries, even a country like the United Kingdom, you'll find that there still are these internal schisms. Now, if you go back into, into Afghanistan, and remember if you're looking at this, this, this camo map with all of these different groups, let me give you some, some kind of another sort of added element to this is that one of the things arguably that made, that some could argue that made the United Kingdom work is that you, despite the fact that you have different groups with, you know, some unpleasant histories and some continuing issues between them, maybe that ultimately don't like each other very much, but, you know, find it profitable to work together, that the one thing that add, that makes this thing work is that the English overwhelmingly outnumber everyone else. Okay, that, that, that's why they end up running everything. That's why the capital is in London, because the English are simply much more numerous, and also they had the best part of the real estate. So that's, that's going to add to it as well. So they're, they're kind of in an overwhelmingly dominant position. Now, in Afghanistan, though, not only do you have all these different groups, none of these groups constitutes a majority of the population. So roughly, the Pashtuns, are the most numerous. Remember, they're, they're the, the bossiest, the most warlike, they're the, the most active group. They make up around 40% of the population, not half, 40%. You can quibble, maybe it's 45, maybe it's 38, but let's just say 40. The Tajiks, who view themselves as somewhat more sophisticated than the Pashtuns, is culturally more advanced. That is, they view themselves that way. It doesn't mean anybody else does. The Tajiks make up about 30% of the population, so they're the second biggest group. And then the Hazaras make up about 10%. The Uzbeks make up about another 10%. And then you've got smaller groups like the Turkomans and the Baluchis and then the... And the and the very smaller groups that are all like one or two. Well, wait, 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 wait! You just you just triggered something. Yeah. I'm looking at your map. <clears throat> I recommend everybody look at Richard's map, and I'm looking at all these peripheral countries around Afghanistan, and they all seem to carry the names of one of the tribes in Afghanistan, but they're separate countries. How the hell did that well, happen? That that brings us to. Um, I mean, why there's a Tajikistan and an Uzbekistan, yes. and even a Pakistan, or keep in mind, millions of people who live in Pakistan. Guess who lives in almost all of the mountains on the other side of that Afghan border in Pakistan? Probably more Pashtuns. Pashtuns. <laughs> more Pashtuns. <laughs> because, hopefully we'll get to this, because in 1893, the British, it's always the British, isn't it? The British came in and <laughs> yes. they drew this border, Okay. So the whole border, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, is called the Durand Line. It's named after the guy who at least approved mapping it out. And this wasn't done until there was no border fixed between India and Afghanistan until 1893. And the British drew it right down the middle of the Pashtun tribal territory. So sometimes the same tribe was on both sides oh, well, of the border. Well, that was really but, smart. Well, I well, remember the, the British, the divide and conquer? Yeah. Okay, that, that's why they wanted to do it. Ah. But it also took but all of that territory, and, and it's fairly extensive, uh, that extends out to the west, the whole northwest, what's now called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in Pakistan. It's one of its four provinces. It's the whole mountain area. 
That's considered by Pashtuns, Afghan and Pakistani Pashtuns, as their homeland. And they view themselves as one people. Is this the home of the infamous Khyber Pass, which is yes, this is where the this is where the Khyber Pass in in many and, you know British movies and uh, right. Okay. Yeah, there's always fighting going out the Khyber Pass. That's yep. because that's again it's the it's the British Northwest Frontier. For what are they fighting? They're fighting restive, pissed off <laughs> Pashtun tribe, <laughs> who, the Pashtuns who are who are you know. Because literally somebody came through and drew this line, this internet, you know, this group of strangers, weirdos, came through, created this line, and you woke up one morning, and suddenly your grandparents were Afghans, and now you're under the rule of the British. I can, I can when just, did that happen? I can just see the T-shirt now. You know, modern T-shirt, forget the uh, Taliban. Um, what about those, you know, pissed-off Pashtuns? <laughs> Yes, and, and, and the Pashtuns even have a name for this whole territory, which, of course, is Pashtunistan. Of course. Of so, course. So, but this, this gives you an idea as to the kind of, of conflicted loyalties that people have. You see, someone who's the member of a Pashtun tribe, which is related to a tribe in, in Afghanistan and related to a tribe and has cousins in Pakistan – that's a loyalty which is much more real to them than the loyalty to this artificial country. So, it, it's, I mean, Pakistan is basically the same. Pakistan is made up of different groups, um, you know, pretty much with the Punjabis running everything, uh, running the military. And in but Pakistan, wait, didn't, the didn't, Pashtuns... Was, 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 wasn't Pakistan once part of India, and then there was a huge yes, separation? Okay. Right. So this is this is why when the Durand line was drawn, it was the British who drew it. So Pakistan wasn't created until 19. That's in 1947. Pakistan separated from India when the British left. But when we're talking about British India, that includes Pakistan. So it's the British who drew this border. And if you look up, if you kind of blow up the map and you find the city of Kabul, the capital, it's a black star. And then you sort of look towards the Khyber Pass. You can find that, the famous Khyber Pass. And then you look a little further into Pakistan, and you see a town called Peshawar. Peshawar, if you prefer. All right? I so got today, it. I got that's, it. Yep. yep. That's, that's in Pakistan. It's about halfway between now, Jalalabad and Islamabad. And <clears throat> in Islamabad. Well, Peshawar... Back in 1823 and up until 1890, through, you know, through much of the 19th century on and off, whenever they held it, if Kabul was one of the capitals of the Pashtun emirs of Afghanistan, Peshawar was the winter capital. Kabul was the summer capital. Peshawar was the winter capital. They're about the same latitude, but they're what? Very different altitudes. Very, di- very different, very different in, in altitude. Ah. So uh, winters in Kabul were hard, uh, and therefore it was nicer to be in Peshawar. So when this line was drawn, this this border today is never been accepted by an Afghan government. They've always argued that the Duran line was unfair because it separated the Pashtun tribes, and it also took away cities like Peshawar, which are ours. So Afghanistan has a long-standing boundary dispute with India or Pakistan, whoever controls that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that that's that later I, I bring that in now to suggest why in the modern day the Pakistani military would want to ensure a friendly regime in Kabul mm-hmm. because they know that 
Afghanistan is a potential threat to the security and continuity of Pakistan itself, and therefore having a friendly regime, which is another way of saying having a puppet regime in Kabul, controlled by the Taliban or anybody else we think it can do it, is a way of making sure that this isn't going to be a problem for us. Uh, because Pakistan's big problem is with who? India. And therefore, Pakistan never wants to find itself in a situation where it has a unfriendly India on one side, oops, and an unfriendly oh, Afghanistan on the other. Oh, you do not want a two-front war. No way. Right. No. So Pakistanis are completely fixated in the idea of having somebody in control of Kabul, although not too much in control, who will make sure that Afghanistan can never actually be a threat to Pakistan. And, you know, one of the ways you minimize that is by helping put the guys into power so they, you know, they, you, they kind of owe you hmm. in a way. Let me ask a really dumb uh, question. Well, okay. How did, Kabul, how did Kabul become Kabul? In other words, why is that the capital of this disunited region if it's at high altitude, meaning it suffers weather extremes, probably can't grow much around it? What, what made it important? Is it on a trade route? Is it... It's on, a, it's on a trade. Well, it's proximity to the Khyber Pass. Oh, is, is but it's giveaway. quite far away on your so, on your map. Jalalabad from, is much closer. Um, well, Jalalabad, but Jalalabad is smaller city. Why? Why was Kabul picked? Yeah. It, it also has to do with a, a defensible position. There's a hill which has always been heavily fortified, so there's always been a fortress there. It was. It probably could have been. A lot of cities, but Kabul became it because of its its position on this trade route between the Khyber Pass, you know, basically between India and Central Asia. Oh. And the main highway route today goes north from Kabul up to the north. The chief rival for Kabul was Kandahar. In the and south. Kandahar is, is further in down south. in the south. Um, the other thing to notice about Kandahar is that it's pretty squarely in Pashtun territory, where you'll notice that Kabul is sort of on the boundary between Pashtun and, and Tajik territory. Mm -hmm. I noticed that. So because Kabul has long been the capital, there's sometimes an argument that, there's, that in addition to the Pashtuns, that you know, all the, the other groups that listed on this map, that there is another group that's not a nationality, but it's a cultural group, the Kabulis. So that people, Kabul is the closest thing you get to a cosmopolitan city in Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's, it's the only thing that would sort of match the idea of a kind of large, modern city. And that's where the political, that's where the, the seat of government was, uh, the center of power. That's where, you know, most of the money that came in from anywhere was expended. And it also has, has a fairly diverse population. So Kabul has... It's, it has Tajiks, it has Pashtuns, it has Hazaras. Almost all of the groups have neighborhoods or areas of the city that they live in. And it also, and they're also, it's the only place where you come across any significant number of foreigners. So for a long time, there would be Indian Hindus or Sikhs or others, generally businessmen who live there. Almost so sounds like a, almost sounds like a, you know, middle of nowhere version of Beirut. Well, Yes, without the beach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. And, the, and, the, and, and the huge crater. But, but Kabul is the closest. Kabul, in some ways, is not the rest of Afghanistan. All right? it, it's, it's like the idea of saying that New York is the United States. It's a cosmopolitan island 
in a nation of of horse of, of villages and ethnic mm-hmm. and, and tribes and mm-hmm. so in kabul you have one argument is that even though the ethnic divisions still remain, people are still aware of whether they're Pashtuns or Tajiks. It's a bit like being – remember all the ethnic communities that lived in New York, but what's the, one of the things that they could claim? They're all New Yorkers. Yep. yep. Okay? You heard people say that. You can say people from any kind of ethnic background, and if they grew up in New York, they're a New Yorker, which it is. You, you have a common experience. Um, I have that in my own mean, family. Robin you know, yeah. grew up, raised in New York. Uh, eventually went to Florida, lived there 30 years, whatever. And she still, when we would meet people anywhere in the world, she'd introduce herself as a New Yorker. Yeah. They're, they're very proud of that. And Kabulis are often very proud that they're from Kabul because, you know, it's the coolest city in the country. So, you know, Okay, Kabul's okay. One, one more dumb question, Dr. Spent. Kabul, you mentioned another tribe. Is that where it got its name? No, no, Kabuli, it's just the name of the town. And people call themselves Kabulis in the same way that yeah, people but call what, themselves well, New what, well, what, is, what does Kabul mean? I don't know what it means. Wow. <laughs> I'm not that's, sure. That's it astonishing. Um, I'm not sure it, it's a word. If it's a word for anything, I'm not sure what the word is. There are a number of place names that mean bridge or fortress, Hisar, but in in my well, I'm certainly glad I asked the question. Because with those languages, Kabul, it, it's, it's just called Kabul. Okay, but well, I'm sure it, it, there's a reason for it. Someone can Google and send us the information, please. Yes. <laughs> okay, so this is getting so, very, 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 very complicated. And the Brits, oh, those lovely Brits. I mean, ultimately, we should write a book and say it all is the fault of the Brits. Yes, they did everything. Yeah. Well, you know, others, others tend to help. And the Brits always argued that what they were doing was that they were trying to restore order. Oh, that's and a good the one. thing about the north of all of these Pashtun tribes, these warlike raiding tribes, was that they were disorderly. And therefore, the, the, the means here was to stabilize, the, to make India safe for the empire by keeping these warlike raiding tribes peaceful up in their mountains. or control. And one of the ways to help do that was to divide them, to split them up under two different political Authorities, mm-hmm. so that most of the of the of the Pashtuns would become the problem of whatever whoever was ruling in in Kabul. So the people who essentially created the state, and, and, and you would get this, I got this argument myself from a Pashtun, was that Afghanistan is essentially a creation by Pashtuns, and in which to some of them, in fact, to this guy in particular, meant that it's our country. So. Pashtun, the you know, the, the rulers have always been Pashtuns. We were the ones who sort of militarily created it and maintained it, and therefore everybody else, the Tajiks, the Hazaras, and the rest of them, all sort of live here by sufferance. They live under our authority, which is the way that many of these groups have traditionally felt. So there's a certain, there is a not universal but widespread resentment of the Pashtuns and was often seen as their kind of historical bullying, that might be one way to put it, towards the other groups among the Tajiks and Hazaras and others. And by the way, the, I keep mentioning this group called the Hazaras. They're not very numerous, but what makes them interesting is that it, it's fair to say that virtually everyone in Afghanistan is a Muslim, and most of them are Sunni or Orthodox Muslims, except for the Hazaras. 
they constitute the only significant community of Shia, oh of sectarian Muslims in Afghanistan. And if you're wondering, have they been persecuted for that in the past? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. More or less constantly. So the, the, the Pashtuns, on the other hand, are all Sunni Muslims. And so the, the Hazaras tend to be, for that reason, if I was going to describe it, they're probably the most picked on by other groups. Everybody seems to pick on the Hazaras. And they, they also in, inhabit a very mountainous, poor area of the country, so they're not economically important. They sort of lived in the back of beyond of what was the back of beyond, so they had no <laughs> political importance. And... Um, you know, they, and, and they're in many ways sort of put upon, as they see it, by both the Tajiks and the Pashtuns. But everybody's got a beef against everybody else. There's a long, there's a long-standing one. So, one of so, the so let, me, uh, uh, let me let me kind of summarize yeah. here. We're about 25 after the hour. <clears throat> the creation, the artificial creation of this nation of Afghanistan, seems to have about as much of a half-life in terms of geopolitics as all those artificial boundaries the British set up in the Middle East. Yes. All right. So the British were quite good at this by the time they started. No, they were very bad at it. Because <laughs> nothing was <laughs> well, stable. Not, not that the result – no. That, that, but, see, but the thing to understand is that often their goal wasn't stability. I mean there, there's, there's a reason why – I thought that was the first political in, rule. You know, when the, when the wall was falling down – some reporter for AP, I think, asked George yeah. Bush, why aren't you celebrating? And he looked at the reporter and he was very grim and he said, stability. We do not want instability. So I thought that the idea of nation building was to create something that would be stable. I thought. Well, you know, it, it was it was shocking to see the Eastern Bloc collapsed in 1989 because it was shocking to see entire governments collapse. That, that's kind of a scary thing for any government to observe. But let's put it this way. Hadn't the U.S. and others for all the decades of the Cold War been doing its best to sow dissent and unrest and instability in Eastern Europe? What was, ra- what was Radio Liberty about? What were all of those propaganda broadcasts about? Radio Free Europe, so et cetera, yeah. We wanted instability, but we wanted instability that we could control. I think we wanted stable instability. <clears throat> Figure yeah, that one it's, out. <laughs> it's, the idea, well, it, it's, it's similar to what this idea of – I mean, the Pakistanis today and the British, when they were supposedly backing – you know, protecting the independence of Afghanistan in the late 19th century – what they wanted was Afghanistan. What the British wanted was a buffer between them and the Russian Empire in Central Asia. That's what they wanted. And, and to some degree, the Russians wanted that as well. So Afghanistan basically exists because in the 19th century, two larger empires, the British and the Russians, came to a tacit agreement that it should exist. Mm. And it should exist because that provided – a presumably harmless buffer state between their two empires, which they then sort of jockeyed for position. So 
the whole political history of Afghanistan from from 1823 on, I don't know, up until the present, up until the 1980s, is just basically the Westerners, essentially the British Empire, and the Russians constantly playing different cards in Afghanistan, undermining a government to have one guy overthrown, to put in their guy who then gets overthrown by someone else. And so it was all part of this great game that was played between the Russian and the British empires. And they didn't do this because they had the slightest regard for anybody who lived in Afghanistan. All they wanted was a buffer between their two empires, but they wanted a state that would be too weak to resist either one of them. Hmm. I mean, the, la- the last thing that either the so, Russians so or the British l- wanted... So let me see if I can turn this around. Yeah. The value of that geopolitical status quo in the 19th century was not in the value of Afghanistan. Its very value was in its lack of value. Yes, it was something. There were no great mineral resources there that anybody wanted. Uh, as long as trade passed through it with some some level of security, what you wanted was a disunified country which had a weak central government and was largely inhabited by unfriendly warring tribes who would spend all of their time, who all the brothers and cousins would be fighting each other and not joining together against the outsider. Ah. That was the situation you wanted. Divide and And, conquer. And that was generally the situation you would get because the government, uh, any Afghan government from 1823 on, that really tried to govern, that actually would go out and try to do things like impose oh, laws. We are missing a break. A Rick, Rick, I'm sorry. Oh. You know, you're so oh, no. damn fascinating that we actually blew past a break. <laughs> Cannot have that. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. Fortunately, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we're a little looser on time. Gosh, you know, I really like Richard's teaching because I learn stuff. I really learn stuff. We'll return to learning stuff about this strange place, almost like a piece of Mars set down on planet Earth, complete with aliens. Afghanistan. We'll learn more about Afghanistan when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that down now, you're going to miss some really interesting surprises just ahead. We shall return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics 
going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows of the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members, because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends, and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, August 29th, with a um, major hurricane raging across uh, the states of Louisiana and Tennessee and Mississippi, and even Alabama's being touched, I understand, and would not want to be down there tonight. Everybody, please stay safe. Stay up high. Water can be deadly, and they're expecting 20 inches of rain. Not exactly the climate and weather conditions in Afghanistan, which is, as Art used to say, really a high, high desert for a great part of the uh, uh, nation. So, uh, Rick, um, let's kind of pick up where we left off, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of building to some questions that I want to ask in a little while, but I want to continue laying foundation, because without this background, nobody's going to know anything. Go back to this, this date I gave you before, 1823, when Afghanistan, as a state, comes into existence. Not the land, not the people, but the state comes into existence. So the guy who's considered to be the founder of that is a fellow by the name of Dost Muhammad Khan. Dost Muhammad Khan was the ruler, the, the chieftain of the Barakzai Pashtuns. So the, the Pashtuns come in different varieties. So... Prior to this, in the 18th century, the, the old Persian Empire had crumbled, and when it crumbled, the Pashtun tribes began to fight among themselves and among others, and the different dynasties sort of rose and fell. So there had already been two so-called Afghan or empires, a thing called the Hotak Empire, which wasn't used the term Afghan, and then there was the Durrani Empire, and those were simply named after the Pashtun families that had, that had seized Kabul and who made themselves rulers over a large area. Well, in 1823, Dost Muhammad Khan overthrows the last figure from the Durrani Empire, seizes Kabul, 
and now decides to formally proclaim himself Emir of Afghanistan. Mm. All right, Emir, that is Prince of a land of a name that, you know, pretty much had some history to it, as we explained, but he just sort of attached because it referred to the whole area without referring to anybody specifically. And Dose Muhammad was a clever politician, and he was, you know, he, he actually held the throne for some time. Well, actually, he holds it twice. And so he's on the throne from 1823 up through 1839, and immediately he finds himself sort of betwixt in between the Russians who are bringing their influence down from the north and the British who are beginning to press their influence from the east. And he finds himself between the two. And, you know, what you do in that situation, if you can, is you play them off against each other. So Dost Muhammad would sort of sidle up to the British for a while and make some promises to them. Then he would sidle over to the Russians and make some promises to them. And what eventually happened was that uh, in 1839, the British got fed up with this and decided they couldn't trust him, that he was untrustworthy. So they fomented a rebellion and sent in an army and overthrew Dost Muhammad and put another previous ruler on the throne, a guy by the name of Shah Shuja. <laughs> now, everything sounds okay, right? Well, there was a certain problem. Shah Shuja... Uh, as it turns out, was uh, really hated by most everybody in Kabul and elsewhere, and was kind of a psycho. And by kind of a psycho, I mean this. Whenever he was upset by anything, if, if any of his servants or any of his retainers did something that angered him or upset him, he would have some part of their anatomy cut off. Good grief. So, so one of the things that a British resident noted is that almost all of his retainers, he's looking at these people, noticing that, well, they're missing their ears or their nose or fingers. <laughs> Some of them don't have any lips. So what, what gives with this? Well, when he got angry, uh, he would simply have them held down, have a finger cut off or ears or, or genitals. You know, it could, it could get fairly serious. Uh, that did not make him a beloved ruler, and in 1842, after a few years on the throne, he is assassinated. No big surprise there. But now the British have lost the guy they'd supported, and there's another rebellion in Afghanistan, and the son of Dost Muhammad, the guy that the British had overthrown, a guy named Akbar Khan, now seizes Kabul. But he, has, he, has, he kind of has to share Kabul. I want you to, I'm going to tell this particular story because I think it has some current resonance. So the British, under the late and unlamented Shah Shuja, the parts cutter, <laughs> had, had established a, a military presence in Kabul. So they had brought a small army of about 4,500 men, Indian troops from the Indian army and, and British officers and some British troops. Uh, they had brought them in and they, in order to support, in order to support the government in Afghanistan that they had installed, they brought in 4,500 troops into Kabul to support him. And those 4,500 troops, many of them being Indian soldiers, had brought their families and relatives and they were like, there were 12,000 camp followers in addition to the, those were especially all the women and children, artificers, merchants, and everything else connected to the army. So there was this whole little foreign community in Kabul. Well, those, uh, rather, uh, Akbar Khan uh, is, makes a deal with the British. And rather than have a bloody battle for Kabul and ruin the whole place, 
he agrees in the winter of 1841-1842 to let them evacuate. So the British agree that their troops, about 4,000 to 5,000 and about 12,000 camp followers, they are given a guarantee of safe passage to march out of Kabul through the Khyber Pass back into British territory. And that's the way it's supposed to work. But depending upon whose version of the story you want to believe, either Akbar Khan was treacherous and had no intention of keeping his word, or he had no control over the local tribes whose territory this army and camp followers retreating from Kabul would go through. Hmm. And what happened was that the whole British column was trapped and massacred. There was one survivor. (laughs) Everyone else, women, the whole thing was slaughtered. And this is something, this didn't happen to the British a lot. And and this gave them a certain amount of respect for the Pashtuns in this area. And it's and it's, and it's the kind of ghost that still hovers over, over the whole, the retreat from Kabul was one of the great nightmares of British military history. And it was, uh, it, the situation isn't the same, but it's kind of eerily similar, isn't it? I was just going to say, I was going to save this for the end of the show, but given this incredible history, what dunderheads in Washington at the State Department advising George Bush thought it was a good idea to invade Afghanistan and try to create a real country? Well, that wasn't what their goal was. Their whole reason in 2001 of invading Afghanistan was because bin Laden and al-Qaeda were hiding there, and that's where they had supposedly plotted the attack on New York. No, but we didn't find so, him for almost what fifteen years, and then I, we found I mean, him. He was hanging out there, and then we but, found you know, him in what Afghanistan. Is, what is this? Uh, I'm sorry, Pakistan. Uh, no, I mean the you know, once the Taliban took over in, back in, in 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 the middle of the 1990s, they were ideologically sympathetic to Al Qaeda, and they had no objections. You know, they weren't paying much attention to what they were doing. I'm not sure anybody ever showed that anybody in the Taliban had any foreknowledge or any interest or involvement in in the 9-11 attacks, Mm. uh, or even specifically that they were definitely plotted, you know, somewhere on Afghan territory. But Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were operating in the area, and that's what we went in to go after. Remember, no Afghans attacked the United States. No, of course not. No, on nine eleven. Okay, no. they're they're not even involved in that. But because the the culprits were hiding out in Afghanistan, uh, that's why it was attacked. And the result of that was that no, you didn't capture Bin Laden and you didn't actually destroy Al Qaeda. But what you did do, and there again, the arguments this was the intention all along or not, was that you uh, attacked the the Taliban. Um, you know, militarily drove them out of the main cities, didn't destroy the movement, drove it out of the cities back into the hills, and then installed another government in its place. In other words, you did exactly what it was the British did in exactly, 1839. Exactly. Okay, so right. go, exactly. Back, go back to laying foundation because okay. this is important for right. the third hour. So keep going. So uh, the, the the retreat from Kabul, the nightmare retreat from Kabul, was, was always going to, to haunt the British after that. Which doesn't mean they were they were never, they were going to give up scheming in Afghanistan. So the rest of it is that Akbar Khan is the I think 
Akbar Khan is also an example of another of another uh, another story, which is probably true, and if it isn't, it should be. <laughs> but remember, I said that you, there are different languages that were spoken. So Akbar Khan was a fairly educated man, quite ruthless, but he spoke both Pashto, which is the language of the Pashtuns, that is his native tribal language, and as being fairly educated, he spoke Farsi, which also people among the British did as well. So. Now this isn't this is an Akbar Khan. This is uh, it's a fellow, but it's it's another another Afghan ruler in the 1870s. What he's doing is that there's a battle going on between the British and, and the Pashtuns, the Afghans, and they're trying to negotiate a ceasefire to this. And and the the Afghan leader is shouting commands, and he's shouting commands in Farsi, which he knows that people in the British camp can understand, and and his own officers can understand. And then he's also shouting orders in Pashto, which his ordinary soldiers can understand. But what someone eventually realizes is that what he's shouting in Farsi is cease firing, cease firing, <laughs> cease firing. What he's shouting in Pashto oh, is no. keep shooting at them, keep oh, shooting no. at them. Oh. And he would later swear that, boy, see, I just couldn't control my troops. You know, they, they were just too worked up. And I was trying. I was trying. You, you, you've got people here know that I was calling for a ceasefire. Mm. Yes, except when you were telling them, go ahead and keep shooting. <laughs> so, um, so it just goes back and forth. Akbar Khan, who had been the, the, the victor, apparently, by, by you know, driving the British out of, out of Kabul, um, he dies soon after. He may be poisoned by his father. No one is entirely sure, because Dost Muhammad then returns and resumes the throne. And um, but then Dost Muhammad eventually die. I think he, he's he's one of the only two in this period who actually has a natural death. Uh, he's then replaced by his son Sher Ali Khan, who's a quite capable guy. Sher Ali Khan tries to actually bring reforms to Afghanistan. He establishes a post office. He actually tries to establish uh, some kind of modern university. What that does is to create rebellions. And therefore, he's only around for two years before there's a rebellion, and he's deposed. And then there are other sons that come and go. What do these tribes have against a post office? I don't, they weren't against post office. They were against anything that smacked of some sort of government-mandated education. The, but this, that isn't what got him into trouble. What he really got him into trouble was that he tried to extend the power of his government into – out in the countryside, and this is still much the case today, outside of Kabul, which you could argue isn't really Afghanistan. I mean Kabul would be the most un, – unlike the rest of the country you could find – that outside of that relatively isolated semi-cosmopolitan area, you've got a land of small cities, small towns, and above all, 80% of the people live in villages. So they don't live in cities. Most people have never been to Kabul. 80% of the population live in villages, and the person who runs the village is the local headman or warlord. That's who runs your life. Now, that warlord may be granted the title of governor of your province, so that's, that's basically what Dost Muhammad or any of the emirs or, or kings would do otherwise. You would, you, know, you would keep the warlords in check by granting them the power to be governor of a province. And what did that give them the power to do? Collect taxes. Mm -hmm. And how did they collect taxes? Uh, they just took whatever they wanted. And, and that's still, in, in much of the rural areas, this is the same 
situation you have. But, you know, what you live under is you live under the mercies of the local warlord, and he's got his his private army, and he levies the taxes that he wants, and he takes what he wants when he wants it. And you simply hope that he is preoccupied or possessed of enough human kindness that he will not take everything. But the government in Kabul can't help you against this guy. So what would really spark rebellions, what Sher Ali Khan did was to really try to create a centralized government. And his real sin was that he was going to send his own people from Kabul to collect taxes. Hmm. Now, imagine how a local so warlord... So why, why, didn't, he, why didn't he make a deal with that. a local warlord, take a percentage, you know, piece of the action, keep it reasonable for the peasants and for the war... In other words, real politic? Well, and I, I, he didn't really go that far with it. It was more the idea that he was he was intruding upon... The basic view was that he was stepping outside his bounds as to what... We'll, we'll recognize you as emir. We'll, 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 we'll recognize you as king, but we'll recognize you as that as so long as you don't bug <laughs> us and interfere with our established privileges. If you start trying to do that, if you start trying to send government people out here into the mountains to tell people what to do, that will spark a rebellion. Uh, the other thing that they were very sensitive about, and again, it's still the same, is that anything that seemed to attack cultural norms – and it's it, it's one of those things that's difficult for what you could roughly call a Westerner to understand. And, and what I'm trying to do here is not necessarily appeal for sympathy for people who would, who would feel this way, but to simply to explain to you that they do feel that way. And one of the issues would be the education of girls. Yeah, we're going to get into that in depth when we if, get If George the traditional on. view was that girls were not educated, that girls basically were to be wives and mothers, and that was it, and that didn't require them to go to school, then the establishment of education that would then lead to other aspects of sort of of them questioning their position in life of giving them aspirations to things other than what it was that their family demanded of them. I mean, the, the basic aspect was that women were largely the property of the family and marriages and uh, would be negotiated by what was best for the family, not what was best for, for the girl per se. I mean, it could vary from case to case, but generally that was it. The, the, the fundamental loyalty was your family and you married who your family said you were going to marry. And that was what your lot in life was. Anything that came in and began, you know, put it simple. Government sends in a school teacher and it starts educating our girls and it starts giving them ideas that there is a life beyond, that there's something beyond their loyalty to their family and the rest of this. This is an attack upon our traditional way of life. Mm. Now, the thing you have to understand is that these people take that very, very seriously. To them, it is an attack on their traditional way of life. And again, I'm not pleading to, to approve of their way of life. You can think that it's reprehensible. You can call it any number of names, but simply to recognize that that's the way that they feel about it. And the fact that you don't like it doesn't matter to them. It, it makes you simply a, an, an enemy. 
if you're attempting to do this, if, you, if you're attacking the very thing in which their society is based on. So that's why any ruler who came along right up to the communists in the – I mean, that's what the communists did in the 1970s. They did what communists do. They started trying to run everything. And then there were, there were government officials everywhere, and they would take away the power of the local warlords and the mullahs. They downplayed they, – they would attack religion itself. Um, they destroyed the or undermined or destroyed the power of the local religious authorities. You were no longer to pay any attention to the priest, the mullah. Uh, now that the party was going to be in control, and and that's what caused the whole rebellion against the communist regime that the the Soviets set up, which we armed and and turned into freedom fighters. Remember, that's what we call them, and they mm-hmm. were essentially the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And there's no ideological difference between the Mujahideen, for the most part, that were fighting the Soviets in the 1980s, and the Taliban who were fighting the Americans in the early 2000s. They all saw themselves as fighting to protect a traditional way of life against foreign intrusion, that communism was a foreign ideology that was being brought in and forced it upon <clears> our country. And, and we don't like that very much, but for many Afghans, uh, you know, American culture was precisely the same thing. It was, it was a foreign culture and foreign ideology that was brought in by people with guns. And that, that's, you know, that, that makes an impression on that because we didn't come in like Buddhist monks offering the benefits of Western civilization and education. It was imposed by force. We invaded took Kabul, which was a symbol of power, installed a regime of our own liking, as the British had done so many times before, and then set about trying to, uh, I you know, I think sort of half-heartedly change the country. But basically what we did is that we built a lot of secure areas in Kabul and various military bases, and that was it. And, I mean, here's the example. The, the construction of this Afghan state was exactly like this grand Afghan national army that we thought we were building. We handed out weapons, we handed out rifles and uniforms and money, and we never got an army. All we did did was to hand out rifles and uniforms and money. I think over the last 20 years, I think over the last 20 years, we've spent something like $2 trillion, and what have we got to show for it? Well... What did you think you were going to have to show for it? I guess would be my question. What was what was it that was going to happen? Going to have the the transportation? I I mean, it's you know the British didn't pull it off. <laughs> the, the 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 communists didn't pull it off, and God knows they tried, <laughs> and not too gently. Um, but anyway, we're we're going through this. Uh, if we step back into the 19th century, we had this this so-called first Anglo-Afghan war, which the Afghans basically win, right? The British retreat, but they never give up. So after some more, rulers come and go and are stabbed and they're replaced by someone else after more endless rebellions internally. Um, <clears throat> the British have their various favorites. They What they want to do is to get the guy that they've placed on the throne, Sher Ali Khan, for the second time. They want him to sign a treaty which would effectively put Afghanistan under British diplomatic control. So that would mean that there would be a return of a British, of a permanent British resident in Afghanistan. There would be a 
elected official from the Indian government, from, from British India, who would be sent there. And they would be there permanently. And they would have a staff, and they would have guards to protect them. And they would basically run the foreign affairs of the Afghan government. And Sher Ali Khan didn't like that. He didn't think that, that was a good eye. Who would, right? <laughs> Who would want to do that? So they overthrew him. And then eventually that leads to the rise of another. This leads to the guy who was given the command in two languages, um, a fellow by the name of Muhammad Yaqub Khan. There are lots of Muhammads in this. And uh, he managed once again to take Kabul. Um, and uh, there, there was another uh, British mission, which was massacred, by the way, in 1878. But the British, in this case, send in more troops. They don't withdraw. They send in more. They invade. They occupy Kandahar. And they eventually form, you know, put yet another guy on the throne, Muhammad Yaqub Khan. And he agrees to sign a thing called the Treaty of Gandamak. So he gives up. The British come in. They've taken Kabul. They put him on the throne, and they go, look, you're going to sign this treaty, and this is going to put all of Afghanistan's foreign affairs under our control. Uh, it will even actually give us the right to determine the frontiers of your country, which is what they do later, and he sees no choice. He doesn't like it, but he signs it. And so there's another – there are more rebellions after the British. The British have to come up with more troops, but eventually they, that will hold, and from roughly 1880 until 1919 – the British will control Afghanistan's foreign affairs, which means that you can't even as a foreigner go into Afghanistan without going through the British officials in India. They, they control all, in, at least from, from that side. And, there's a, and under that, you have to say it gave a brief period of stability. There's a ruler by the name of Abdurrahman Khan who runs things from 1880 to 1901, and amazingly, he dies a natural death. He actually serves. He, he, he's emir for for twenty years, hmm. twenty one years. Doesn't you know? Doesn't try to rock the boat too much. He sort of knows how this works. He brings in a a few little modest governmental reforms, all carefully watched by the British. Uh, and so that that actually, of course, that's not going to last. He's been succeeded by his son Habibullah Khan. And uh, <laughs> Habibullah is again around for about eighteen years until in nineteen nineteen. He's assassinated, and um, and what that then sets what, off a struggle for power among what his did, brothers. What did he do wrong? And you can't answer it because we're up against the clock. So oh, okay. save it, save it for the other side. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're having an extraordinary tour de force, you know, walkthrough of very complicated. Very confusing and very, um, shall we say, uh, implicated Afghan history in terms of what's coming, which we'll get to when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll be joined by Georgia Lambert. We're going to talk about the future of women and girls and education and the country and our fate and future and terrorism and all that really weird stuff. When we return, don't touch that dial.
The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone. It is now officially Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. We are officially on the other side of midnight here. Actually, uh, in other time zones, we've been on the other side for quite a while. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're going to be joined shortly by Georgia Lambert. I want uh, Richard to kind of clean up a few loose ends here before we move the conversation to a more contemporary situation, which is what's going on tonight and has been going on over the last few weeks, if not the last 20 years. So, uh, Richard, so 1919 is a major breakpoint in terms of contemporary history, right? It's, it's another period of ferment. That's what we call a period of ferment in Afghan history. I mean, more <laughs> – there's always some level. One way to think of it is that under – When was there the not? stable <laughs> – well, there's always a rebellion going on somewhere. That was there. There was no time, even among the even among the the rules that were relatively peaceful in Kabul. There was always some rebellion somewhere because some warlord would get ambitious and march on Kabul, or someone was would feel that their their powers were threatened, or the fighting would break out from between the tribes. Uh, the one thing that the fellow who was assassinated, the fellow who says this, oh, so Habibullah Khan had been on the throne for almost 20 years. This, basically, this, was, this was a guy that wanted to institute taxes from a central governmental control in Kabul. Well, he, no, he, did, <coughs> he didn't try that to me. He did try to expand education. His, his big – his sin, what and to a certain extent got him killed probably, was that 1919 is right after World War I. And so during the First World War, there were – because Afghanistan sits right on the border of what? India? and Russia, who were allies. There were German and Turkish agents in Afghanistan through the war. There was a whole German military mission that went there, and they were trying to get Habibullah to join the Central Powers, to join Germany and the Ottoman Empire, and to attack the British through the Khyber Pass. Well, but didn't we I mean, see that again, scene in, uh, in uh, um, Indiana Jones? The <laughs> yeah. Germans in yeah, Afghanistan? It's, it's, and- it's, and again, they don't they don't care at all about anybody in Afghanistan, but they they wanted to get him to create trouble for the British, 
to the idea was that if the Afghans attacked, all the Pashtuns on the Indian side of the border would join them, which was a pretty good bet. Habibullah, on the other hand, was no fool. Uh, his questions always were, well, if I go to war with the British, what can Germany and Turkey do to support me? Because you're a long, long way away and there's really no communication. And, you know, they would make vague, well, we'll try to get weapons to you, the rest of this. And, you know, he decided he wasn't going to do it. That angered a lot of people. Smart words, guy. And uh, smart guy, but that uh, tended to make enemies, and that probably has something to do with why in 1919 he was assassinated. Oh. Uh, his brother, Nasrullah Khan, came in. He was there for just a little while before he was overthrown by another ruler, another another brother. Remember, my, uh, I against my brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanullah, okay? I know there are a lot of names that come and go. And Amanullah, now Amanullah is the guy who creates the kingdom of Afghanistan. So Amanullah did a couple of very seemingly odd things. In 1919, having seized Kabul and made himself emir, he declares war in the British Empire and invades British India, the third Anglo-Afghan war. He thought he could take advantage of Briti- that the British were exhausted after World War I, and he could start this huge rebellion among all the Pashtun tribes, and he would, could regain – but he would force the British to cede the Pashtun lines back to him that were lost with the Durand line. Uh, he's also being encouraged this, in the, by the way. you got to think about it. Okay, this is 1919. Well, the Tsarist Russians are gone. Who could possibly have a delegation in Kabul – who's telling Amanullah that now's the right time to attack the British. Hmm. I wonder if those could be the Bolsheviks. Yes, that's who oh, it is. Oh, my, 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 okay. my, my, my. So, so this is when the Soviets, you, know, I mean, you see, the Tsarist Russians aren't there anymore, but now it's just the new Russians. Okay. And they're doing the same thing that the Russians before them did. And this to me is one of the fascinating things, not just about Afghan history, but about history as a whole, is it's, it's the same play in different costumes. It's just people with different names dressing up in different costumes, and they always keep doing the same things over and over and over again. So, well, well wait, wait, wait. Hang on, Russia. hang on, hang on. There's, right. there's, a, there's right. a standard cliche in your business, those who do not learn from history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And flipping forward now to the war in Vietnam, remember David Halberstam's famous book, The Best and the Brightest? Yes. Well, what what made our guys think in any conceivable universe that we, the West, the United States, could make any real dent in this culture, which would undermine the root of, quote, terrorism in Afghanistan? In other words, it seems to me that this was a boondoggle from the beginning. Well, here's the thing to keep in mind, that 2.24 or 2.26 trillion dollars, it all went somewhere. Yeah. All right. So, when people say that all the money was all sort of thrown down, you know, it was, it was you know, the, the image you often get is that the money was all put in a giant pile at Bagram Air Force Base and set on fire. Yep, yep. But of course it's not. The money, all of that two trillion plus dollars, that money passed from the coffers of the Treasury of the United States, and from that, before that, presumably from the taxpayers of the United States, into the pockets of contractors, suppliers, corrupt Afghan officials. God knows how much they managed to, to siphon off, 
And and so it all went to pay somebody. So it made a lot of people very, very rich. Seems and to me seems to me if some bright <laughs> Afghani if there is such a person, <laughs> you made me really doubt. Um if they had set up something like Eisenhower's interstate highway system and logistically united the country, it wouldn't have t- taken 2.6 trillion. It could have been done probably for what? Maybe, maybe 500 billion so that every tribe could communicate. They could all get to Kabul. They could all kind of have vacations that would allow them to try. In other words, to unify a country, you've got to be able to travel in a country. Talk to people. Mingle. Well, interestingly enough, somebody had exactly that idea. And it it takes us up a few more decades. But in the 1960s and 1970s, that was the plan which the Soviets had, who began to come in and give a great deal of economic aid to Afghanistan, uh, eventually to sort of try to lure its elite into their camp, which they certainly succeeded in doing. But the, the, the Soviet plan was the construction of the Ring Road. And I don't think I've got a map there that shows it, but if you, anybody looks at a map of Afghanistan and you find Kabul and you find Kandahar and then you look around to towns like Herat, you'll notice that there is a highway that runs a very irregular, roughly circular, egg-shaped course around the center part of the country. It's, it your, it's, 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 it's your second map. Go to map number okay. two, folks. There oh, it is. I, Kabul. I, do. I do have that. That shows yeah. the, the Soviet position, but ah. that, that does show the ring road. And the ring road was largely uh, a concept by, by Soviet engineers, which was built uh, in the 70s. And, and the whole point there was to connect Afghanistan's main cities with the idea of extending the, the power of the government. But, of course, the minute you say extend the power of the government, see, every local ruler, every local warlord, every little king in his valley knows that as soon as – that if the government manages – in Kabul manages to extend its power, it will be at the expense of his. And therefore, what this does is it just primes these people to join a rebellion against the government because that's the way of maintaining their own little kingdom. But the Soviets did build the Ring Road, and the Ring Road does connect most of the of the main cities. There it is on your and, second map. And and again, and then if you look at uh, later American and NATO strategy in Afghanistan, it was precisely the same to control the Ring Road and the cities on it. All of those cities were considered to be the key point. And if you look at where Western military bases were built, they're all basically built along the ring road because mm. that was the main – that's, that's the, the closest thing you have to really a, sort of a good highway in, in most, most of the country. And it passes through very rugged areas. But that was – so, yeah, the, the very idea you talked about uh, had been mentioned, and it was one of those things uh, you get um, – Amanullah, the, the guy who attacked the British, he loses the war, but he keeps his throne. But, but what he does do is that the British rescind that treaty which gave them control over Afghan's foreign relations. So Afghan now becomes fully, Afghanistan becomes fully independent. And then – And this is Amanullah, in what year again? This, this is in, uh, in 1919. 1919, okay. Okay, so, so Amanullah starts a war with the British, loses it, but diplomatically gets them to – Grant to to do away with their control of Afghanistan's foreign affairs. So wait, wait, and that's, so he tra- that's a huge right. concession. 
He basically won. Well, he got something. He didn't get the territory that he wanted. What he wanted to do was to regain Peshawar and, and the Pashtun lands to the east. So he doesn't, he doesn't get any territory. But the British, again, are, he was right in one sense. The British were too bankrupt and exhausted and had too many problems. This is right after World War One. Right. They had no stomach or money for it to get, you know. And this, see, this was the question that the British were asked. So the British defeated the Afghan attack. And then the question was, well, do we want to go in and occupy Kabul and Kandahar? And the question was, well, the only way we're going to do this would be to go in and occupy the whole country. And we'll never pacify it. <laughs> the, the only, in fact, someone said the only thing that would do if we go in and into Afghanistan, that will ensure that we will simply be fighting there for, I don't know, the next 20 years. That sounds because that, familiar that, somehow. There will always be this. So the British rather wisely said, look, okay, you can have your own foreign affairs back. We don't care. So Amadullah got something out of it, and he then decided he was going to become a grand reformer. And, and in 1926, he decides he's going to promote himself to king. And then he goes on a tour of hmm. Europe, and he goes and looks what Ataturk is doing in Turkey. And he thinks all of these, you know, these modernized. So he comes back in the late 1920s, and Amadullah is all about trying to, you know, a national educational system, you know, even for girls. Uh, we're we're going to have, we're going to build up the country. We're going to have relations with everybody. You know, he had these kind of grand schemes, and you know what happens next. There's a rebellion, and he is overthrown and replaced by his brother, who is then overthrown uh, and uh, replaced by a Tajik former bandit, <laughs> and, um, whose, whose name also is Habibullah Kalakani. But this, this is the only kind of non-Pashtun, and... The only reason why this former bandit gets any following is because he seems to represent the, the common traditional people, and they hate what they now view as this, this foreign tainted. You know, the king has gone abroad, and he's come back tainted with all kinds of with, uh, vicious, infidel ideas. And so Habibullah Kalakani seizes control. He's in power for a few months until he's then overthrown. Uh, and deposed and bloodily executed. And then there's another guy who replaces him, and then he's executed. And then there's another fellow who comes back uh, and actually establishes uh, Muhammad Nadir Shah, who, who restores order and then is assassinated in 1923. <sighs> okay? Mm-hmm. And then in 1933, his son, Muhammad Nadir Shah, excuse me, his son, Muhammad Zahir Shah, takes the throne and holds it for a remarkable 40 years. Oh, my God. So Muhammad Nader Shah, defying all odds up to this time on Afghan rulers, is on the throne from 1933 to 1973. He doesn't do a lot. He brings in some reforms, carries a lot of, a lot of improvements in, in Kabul, expands education, tries to expand the government a bit. In 1964, he actually gets around to kind of granting a semi-demi-pseudo-constitution. He's also the guy who changes the name of Farsi to Dari, so it won't sound, well, so Persian. (laughs) But then what happens to him in 1973 is that he's overthrown by a military coup led by his cousin. (laughs) So his cousin 
Muhammad Daoud Khan. I told you there were lots of guys named Muhammad. Yeah. His cousin is a member of the royal family, but he's a member of the royal family who feels, you know, they're kind of put upon. They're sort of shirt tail relatives. So he has become an army officer. He's also become a kind of quasi-Marxist, and he's become very, very friendly with the Soviet advisors. And with some advice from them, in 1973, he and other officers overthrow the monarchy and reclaim Afghanistan a republic. They also legitimize a political party called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, i.e. the Afghan Communist Party, Hmm. which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the USSR. So what happens? Well, for five years, uh, Muhammad Dawood Khan, who overthrew his cousin, the king, uh, sets as the president of the Republic of Afghanistan until the communists, supported by the Soviets, the members of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, overthrow him in 1978 and assassinate him along with almost the members of his family. Uh, a guy, a, a Marxist army officer by the name of Nur Muhammad Taraki takes over. And and now you might assume that peace would prevail of some form because, well, you know, at least the communists are in control. But here's the problem. The People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan is split into two rival factions, the Parcham faction and the Khalk faction. (laughs) And they don't like each other. And so there are coup d'etats between those. The other thing that happens is the communists come to power. Now, if you want to talk about a a foreign ideology that would really alarm people out in the Afghan countryside. I mean, the whole idea of collectivized agriculture, suppression of free trade, education of women. I mean, who knows what else could happen? Um, you know, cats dancing with dogs. <laughs> yes, I saw the movie. So this, this starts, this starts a, 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 a rebellion all across the country, people fighting to defend their way of life against the godless communists. And then you have feuds and coups between the different rival branches of the communists. And that's what eventually creates such a mess that in 1979, the Soviets have to come in and intervene, uh, actually kill the Marxists that they had installed in power before, install another guy, and are then for 10 years fighting a war against this rebellion which the U.S. through the CIA and the Pakistanis are subsidizing as much as possible because it's making the world tough on the Ruskies. So Gorbachev pulls out in 1989, basically, you know, makes a deal saying, look, okay, we spent a lot of money. You know, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars training the Afghan People's Army. Uh, Here's a lot of weapons. Good luck. (laughs) And they leave. The the communist regime actually survives for a couple of years, but it continually loses more and more ground. Eventually, the Mujahideen. uh, Oh, well, this answers, Rick, Rick, this answers a major, major question, which has been puzzling me now for the last two weeks. You know, as I as I cited at the top of the show, you know, the, the, the reporter that was in Kabul when the when the when the government fell was shocked at how fast it fell. And we were all shocked. Everybody was shocked. Obviously, they were projecting on the basis of when the Soviets ran back to Moscow and left the communist government in charge. And it took two years for it to kind of fall. Our guys thought they they thought they had the same amount of time and they obviously weren't watching what was going on on the ground. Well, not that I ever made a scientific survey, but I have talked to a number of people who were – 
involved in Afghanistan in different capacities, and a few of those were involved in training Afghan National Army troops. Right. Every one of them basically said the same thing, which was that, uh, you know, the Taliban will return to power once we leave. I mean, that, that seemed to be accepted by everybody. Yeah, they'll come back in. You know, it'll take a while, and there might be some sort of negotiation between the two. But, you know, basically, uh, the Afghan government we've installed will, will fall. It, 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 will, it will inevitably fall. And I think that, I mean, that was something that was pretty clear to me that there's even before. That. And that's what I, I assumed that it would probably be much like it was before. You know, it'll hang on for six months, a year, a year and a half. Eventually, yeah, exactly. everybody will load up money in a helicopter and fly out in the Taliban. But, but it, it, to me, it tells you something that, that after 20 years in this, the comment you would get over and over again, except by political nabobs, was that, yeah, we did all of this stuff, but it's pretty much hopeless. Okay, okay. It, it won't last. Okay, it, and, and all that happened was that it happened a lot faster than we assumed, and it was – I mean, basically, these, they just went home. Yeah, that's all that happened. Exactly. There weren't even any. There weren't even any battles. You would. They all negotiated happened. a deal before we left. Right after we said we're leaving, they all got together in some big party and said, "Okay, you take this, and I'll take that, and you take that, and no one's going to fight anybody." No, they they would go up to you know the provincial capital. The Taliban would be, the Taliban had all these towns surrounded, so. Already, I mean, if you went back and looked at a map from, from a month ago, I mean, they've been steadily gaining ground, not over the last few months, but really from about 2010. Every year, the Taliban extended their control into other areas. So effectively, they controlled most of the rural areas, and the larger towns and cities, especially along the Ring Road, were like these islands that were held by the government and by Western troops. Mm. But the only way you could move between these towns, even along the Ring Road, was by armed convoy. That's not really a terribly successful model. It also meant that why airports were so important. The only way to sort of move troops back and forth was through the airports that each of the, around each of these towns. And it was the, – the Afghan National Army was basically recruited from young men who didn't have any other kind of jobs or skills. I mean, look, from the Afghan standpoint, there's been a war going on since 1979. Okay, that, That's when the Soviets showed up. That's when the whole country went into, into war mode. And for them, this isn't a 20-year war. This is a 40-year war. And the war is basically years. against Afghans against the world, the outsiders. It's, it's against the outsiders. It's against anyone who's seen to cooperate with the outsiders. It's, but it's also influenced. You know, with the Taliban, which is to approach a town, they, what they do is they go to the local mayor, the, the local governor, who's basically what the local warlord. Mm-hmm. And what the local warlord is going to do it's what you know, anybody with any sense is going to do. Look, you know, the, the same sort of – the Taliban are going to take over at some point. So am I going to take my, my loyal tribesmen that I can trust, and are we going to fight to the death to defend this town? No. No, we'll make a deal. The Taliban will let us load up as much money or whatever else we have and the trucks that are available, and they'll let us get – remember, all these guys always left town, drove to the airport. Taliban didn't bother them <laughs> or headed up. Okay, you guys take what you want, leave the rest, and then we just walk in. I mean, there was no, there was no fight, and it was, 
yeah, I think one description was there was one guy who told me he was you know, he, he, he carrying out operations. This was back in like 2012. He was carrying out operations with Afghan troops, and he goes, well, what the Afghan troops did is that, uh, you know, when there wasn't any fighting going on, they were sitting around smoking hash and opium. <laughs> and uh, when there was any fighting, they were so stoned that they would essentially fire off all of their ammunition, and then we would have to retreat. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then he eventually figured out that that's exactly what their goal was. Okay, we got a bunch of ammunition, boys. We're going to go out and fight the Taliban, encounter some Taliban, and the Afghans would just let loose. You know, no fire control whatsoever. They would just expend every bullet they had, and... <laughs> And then you couldn't go any further. <laughs> and but but the guy's realization is he goes at first I thought this is just because they were so stoned they didn't know what they were doing. And then he goes stupid me. Eventually I realized that they were doing this deliberately. That they had no intention of fighting. And they knew that if they fired off all of their ammunition, we'd have to quit and go back to base. <laughs> How interesting. So. Um, I mean, what these guys were doing, there's no jobs in the country to speak of, you know, except basically working for the Americans. That was the best job you can get. I don't blame anybody for taking that. I mean, look, the, the Americans want you to be a translator. Who else is going to pay you that kind of money? Right. And right. At the Afghan National Army didn't pay much, but it would look. What did you get? You got, uh, if you were lucky and you had a decent commander, you got a little bit of money because he wasn't going to give you the full amount of money. He'd keep most of your pay. But he'd give you a little bit of money, probably uh, supply you with all the drugs that you could snort, smoke, or shoot up. And, uh, you know, you got, a, you got a, a, a clean pair of clothes, a good pair of shoes, a weapon that you could sell to the Taliban and then get another weapon and sell that to the Taliban. And where do you think the Taliban got all their weapons from and all their ammunition? <laughs> they don't make them in factories. Of course not. They, they, get them, they get them from the guys in the Afghan National Army who are what? Often, they're cousins. Of course, of course. All right. So you got to think about this. But, 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 Rick, 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 what you're laying out here right. is, is, is the yeah. Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. You know what that is, right? From Star Trek, the no-win scenario? There's ah, no yeah. way that we or the Soviets or anybody can make a dent in this culture until you attack it, and I use that term loosely, from the direction of the culture, from the bottom up, and that can't well, happen. Uh, you know, there there are lots of people. Uh, it, it's they were doomed from the beginning. We didn't have a prayer. You know, those two thousand no. Americans, boys and girls, men and women, who were who died after the Taliban were were def- uh, not the Taliban, the Al Qaeda were defeated. I mean, the last what? 15 years has been a total waste of time and money and attention and the lives of, you know, far too many people. Well, you know what is, I suppose, you know, it is, it is a sad but true thing in history. There aren't a lot of wars you can't say that about. I mean, if you, if you think of the, the endless, and I do mean endless wars and squabbles that human beings is that almost none of them ever got people what it was that they wanted. And from the standpoint of the common soldier, at most part, it was the hope that you got fed and paid and you survived long enough to spend that money or it meant some sort of 
unpleasant death in a far-off land, far land a long way from home. But it's never really changed in, in that regard. It's a, you know, it's easy to do all of this from sort of 2020 hindsight, but if, here's the argument, if you go through, and I've only sort of sketched out a much more, only part of Afghan history, but I think if people have been paying attention, you're kind of getting the picture, there's a certain trend which emerges, which this is not an easy place to govern, is not a place in which you just go in and carry out some sort of shake-and-bake reforming without some real sensitivity towards local customs and some way to deal with those other than by force of arms because that they'll, they'll simply fight. Um, I mean, here's the reason why it was, I suppose, it yeah, kind of fools Aaron. Sooner or later, we had to go home. And they were always right. going to be there. They our home. Because it was home, right. exactly. Okay, all and, of there. And this, and this, and this, and this is the, the huge advantage that the Taliban have. They are, in a sense, the, the, the soldiers and others' cousins. They, yeah. they have more in common with them than they do with us. We're, we're always the outsiders are going to be there for a certain period of time, and we're going to dispense, we're going to hand out uniforms and money and more money and more weapons and we'll hand this out and we'll take all the stuff that you're giving and we'll come back and we'll ask for more but nobody ever said we were going to love you richard you have done it you have given me a overview to where i actually have the stupidity to think that i might know something about afghanistan <laughs> thank you so well, much okay when we when we come back we're at the bottom of the hour when we come back we're going to bring georgia George Lambert, who's been very patient, and we've got some other calls, and Ron, uh, Ron will probably join us. And uh, final half hour, we're going to try to make some sense out of what we've learned. And I'm not kidding. I have learned a lot. So thank you, Dr. Spence. Gosh, don't you wish you had been in his class when you were in school? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And to take us out, more Afghan music. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go this Sunday night, Monday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, next weekend, we're going to kind of do the um, uh, World Trade Center uh, 9-11 anniversary. We're going to do it in two parts, Saturday night with representatives of the Lawyers Committee. We're going to find out where the uh, Southern District of New York is in the legal proceedings leading to discovery of what really happened on 9-11. And then on Sunday night, uh, we've got an author who's written a hell of a book, an amazing book, uh, and I'll give you more details on Saturday. But if we can get him, we're working hard. Uh, It will be a major coup because just like Rick tonight, he will give you a top-down overview, big picture of what happened in 9-11 and where a number of people went so radically wrong, including this Afghanistan experience, which, again, in my mind is it's so mind-boggling. You know, Rick, it's just – it's like – you know, it's Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, hadn't had a clue for 20 years in even how to begin to build a nation state around the foundations of Afghanistan. In fact, I don't think, given what you've said tonight, that anybody except the Afghans themselves can ever, ever really do this. No. I mean, that's that's in many ways the obvious answer that everybody knows. It, you know, it's not going to change until they want to change. And I'm not saying there's any particular, you know, that they have to. Mm. But it's a... Um, well, let's talk about adapting. change. Let, let us yeah. talk. We've got a half an hour. I want to bring in Georgia. Uh, Georgia, are you with us? I am. There Good you evening. are. And is Ron with us? Ron, Mr. Gerbron, there you are. I'm okay. here. Um, yeah. I'm I'm sorry I kind of let Rick go on, but I wanted to have closure to kind of come to where we are now. We can look back through the telescope and see where we come from, where we are now, and where we might go. So the first thing I want to do is I want to go to Georgia. You've listened the last couple hours, I suppose. What is your takeaway and what is your kind of impression of where we are tonight vis-a-vis Afghanistan? Well, a couple of things. First of all, just let me tell you a a short little story here. Um, Many years ago, uh, when Ayub Khan was president of Pakistan, uh, my father was part of a delegation to uh, go and, and visit. Oh, that's right. Your, your, your dad was a very high, what, general in, in, uh, in uh, shape or whatever? Bird, bird colonel. Oh, okay. Full, full bird colonel. Anyway, uh, and uh, as part of their uh, itinerary, they were taken up to the, the hill chiefs at the Khyber Pass. And, uh, you know, when Rick was talking about the ethnic identities of the various tribes. Um, my father was uh, met by this old hill tribal chief who presented him with this amazing battle axe. And he mumbled something or other, and my dad looked at the translator, and the translator said, he said, now here, go out and get yourselves a Hindu. <laughs> 
and and he meant it. Huh. And I have that battle axe on my wall with all my swords. Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> anyway, so that know, so basically that's the mindset you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the thing about that is, you know, uh, if we look back in the recent history. Uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, when they had a lot of Eastern Europe, you know, the, the the iron glove of the Soviet Union told a lot of these little factions, you can't fight with each other anymore. But it did nothing to change their consciousness. So the minute the Soviet Union fell, all of these little factions uh, went right back to war with each other because the field of consciousness wasn't changed. Now, what makes this different in Afghanistan is that we've got 20 years of women having another idea. That's exactly where I want to go. Which means that the field has changed. Now, they may not be able to do anything about it at first because... Oh, you know, but they oh, already oh, are. Did you see oh. that huge demo the other day Went right after uh, the, the palace fell? By the way, I want to tell a little pamphletical story, Rick. Um, uh, speaking of the palace, remember how uh, the president, I think his name was Ghani, just kind of disappeared? Yep. Well, I found out today reading a report that literally um, he was there in the morning, and when the staff came back after lunch, he was gone. It yeah. fell literally over lunch. Literally. Uh, in an hour. In a helicopter. Allegedly loaded with a large amount of money. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. So uh, I want to really dig into this because I've seen all the negative projections. I know the Taliban. Uh, I don't know them, obviously, as well as uh, Rick does. But it's been pretty scary to consider the the 20-year-old Taliban coming back. But I've been seeing all kinds of green shoots that maybe things are not going to repeat because right after – uh, Ghani split with his helicopter and his money, and the Taliban walked into the palace and said, oh, my, look around, look at that, wow. Um, there was a big demonstration that went on for several miles, led by women with big versions of the Afghani flag, and nobody did anything against them. They marched, they demonstrated, they made their will and their intentions known, and they established an imprint at this transition, which says to me, it's not going to repeat like a Xerox again. Maybe. Maybe. Well, I, I think that's true. I think that it's possible that the, uh, the religious powers that be could impose Sharia law um, for a while. But we know from an esoteric standpoint that things move from subtle to dense. The field has changed. The, the women are 50% or more of the population. And whether they've been verbal or not, their thoughts have changed the field. And that means that it's eventually going to work its way out in activity. Now, how fast or in what way? We'll have to wait to see, but it's not the same. That's probably the most heartening thing I've heard all night. That actually, you, t- I mean, we haven't talked about this, right? We are not compared notes. We haven't had a backstage discussion. My impression is, Rick, history this time is not going to repeat. 
because A, the physics itself of consciousness is different now. That's a physics discussion. But B, they've had 20 years of exposure to a culture which, if, if anything, is libertine, open, free, makes all the right statements, and has inculcated a generation of both Afghan men and women that there are other ways. And it wasn't done at the point of a gun. It was done with, with uh, you know, candy as opposed to uh, uh, vinegar. Well, the Westerners never gave up their guns while they were there. I mean, that's one thing to keep in mind, is that we came with guns and we stayed with guns. There was at no point where we put our guns down and said, we're just here to help you. If you look at anything from the American embassy, if you look at airports, any of the fields, they're fortresses. And that's one of the things just – I was looking at this thing the other day of, of contractors who were working. This was at uh, Kandahar Airport before well, – this was a couple of months back, and, and, it, and it's a fortress. And if you, if you look at the environment in which Americans and other Westerners kept themselves in Afghanistan – they stay very much behind the walls. And why are you behind the walls? Why are everything you have surrounded by blast walls and barbed wires and you're armed? Because you fear the people around you. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't necessarily fear. Well, sometimes you feel the people around you when you've got the green on blue attacks when someone decides that you know, they're, they're going to start shooting. There was plenty of that that went around as well. I, 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 first of all, let me say that I... I Cautiously agree with what you in, in, in Georgia have brought up. It, this isn't 2001. The Taliban leadership is different. We don't know how different yet. They also seem to be more media savvy. For instance, they've, they've played it pretty, but rather than rushing into Kabul and massacring everyone, you know, rather than firing on that demonstration, which they could have done, they let it go forward. They're mm. putting forward a fairly – they're willing to negotiate. They're, they're, they seem to be willing to be practically cooperative. That is, things that work to the advantage of both sides. Everybody has a common interest in restoring some semblance of order, especially them, because they're going to be left with the place. I mean, I mean – it's their problem now. Think of it that way. Well, the, the horrible Maybe. explosion a few days ago you know, outside yeah. the airport was as much against the Taliban. From It killed it, more Taliban than it did. It, exactly, it exactly. By this, Not uh, that we're terribly concerned about that, but, it did, but that's what they're concerned about. This ISIS-K faction, it, it basically we're looking at a civil war. Well, you know what happened after the Mujahideen defeated the communist government and took Kabul? In 1992, unfortunately, I have to say I was out. not I was not paying much much attention. All all of the of the Mujahideen commanders who had fought together against the Soviets and the communist government now fought for control of Kabul. And at one point in the early 90s, they just start they inherited a lot of scuds, a lot of these large surface to surface missiles, and they just started. Then that's what that's why much of Kabul was reduced to ruins. It, it 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 wasn't the Soviets that reduced it to ruins. It wasn't. It was the the victorious Mujahideen fighting among themselves. They started throwing missiles into Kabul and essentially killed twenty five thousand people. Holy just, cow! Just killed them. 
Well, Rick, that tells you what. The, hang on, hang on. That, that, that's a major, major light bulb going off. That's why they didn't have to do it this time. Because they well, knew if they did the because, same. Go ahead. Well, I mean, this, this, the Taliban didn't exist when that was happening, although people who later became part. And it was this chaos. It was this civil war among the victorious Mujahideen. They turned on each other, and there was war across the country. There was the Battle of Kabul. There was the slaughter of civilians. There technically was some sort of government which didn't run anything. The Pakistani military pretty much ginned up the Taliban. That's as what a I way, learned. As, as a, I, I learned that yes. just the I was I was stunned because I was not paying attention 20 years ago. What was I doing 20 years ago? Oh, we were you know probably doing something in space. Anyway. The uh, the ISS, which is the Pakistani intelligence service, they created the Taliban to again maintain Pakistan's control over Afghanistan. Obviously. Well, yes. It's it's probably going too far to say that they created them. That there was that none of the of the Taliban. Let's say they rather, nurtured them. None of the Afghan them. refugees would have got. Well, they supplied the money and they supplied the training and they supplied the weapons. That's nurturing. And they wanted to turn the Taliban into an instrument to go into the into this war-corned country. The Taliban, if you think about the the divisions I've talked about, the suspicions between Tajik and Pashtun, the different languages, the different tribes, what's the one thing that you could appeal to that you could possibly unite people around? The other. What's the one thing? Islam. Right? And the Taliban, all the Taliban means are students. They were recruited from religious schools, and they are arguing, we are religious students who have given up our study of the Quran to take up arms to create a purified Islamic state under Sharia law, and we'll come in and we'll reestablish order. And, and they did that. Not, they did it brutally. Not bad branding. They, <laughs> they did establish. And now I think they want to be a, a little bit more subtle about it see the question that we'll only know over time is how much of this sincere is sincere and how much of it is politics well one thing we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks given this 97 nation agreement uh which was announced this morning i've got a state department communique here on the computer <clears throat> apparently they have agreed to let us continue tuesday after the 31st the evacuation of those afghans and those foreign nationals that want to leave and that's the okay. trust but verify. That's the if but, if, if they really are new. Say again. Do we still have to pull out troops though? Oh, we have to, absolutely. You know, by by Tuesday. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe we've got no, but they're saying. I mean, and this could have been. I don't know. Uh, maybe that was the way to approach it to begin with, because. You know, there's all kinds of criticism, and, and uh, it, it's a difficult situation to do anything right in, but I don't know whether plopping down 5,000 troops in Kabul airport where you know that there's just going to be a mad rush of people almost uncontrollable trying to get in, and, and how are you going to handle that? I think that and, was predicated on a worst-case scenario where the government simply collapsed, like over lunch. It wasn't yeah. 11 days. It was lunch. Um, yeah. So anyway, but that's – anyway. All right. Let me – let me, sorry, sorry to interrupt. But we're running very short on time here. I want to bring Ron sure. in. <clears throat> Ron, who considers many things, is a really good generalist uh, among those that 
think of ourselves as generalists. Ron, you've been listening. You had a question or two for Rick, I believe. Uh, no, actually, uh, well, accolades. Uh, this is fun to listen to. Love this stuff. But I had a question that apparently okay. was raised. I was I was in a phone call, and uh, it happened to be somebody who was continuously listening to the show and heard that you didn't know the derivation of the name Kabul. Okay. Name yeah. of the city. Uh, it's pretty easy, and it has a tie-in with other things, or I would have thought it was completely extraneous, but it doesn't really doesn't really help much. Uh, it's named after the river that runs through the city. However, okay. the current that. name is pronounced slightly different from the. Uh, it's that's why it's the pronunciation is both Kabul and Kabul uh, if you look it up, because the uh, the old name, and this is just like Cairo, which remember also changed to the same name differently. Uh-huh. So the the slight difference in the uh, in the new name uh, is translated officially uh, not by the Pashtun because they argue about everything, but the um, uh, local languages as meeting place, which also sounds familiar. Oh, it's a car. Very yes. uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it actually uh, yeah the old name is just the name of the river, and that river name is kind of cool because. It's one of the it's one of the names in that region that extends from there quite a bit east to uh, that we don't know. It's like Ur, the city of Ur, famous from the Bible and so forth. No one has any legitimate idea where the word came from because it's from an older culture. So this stuff goes way way back, as do those uh, passions and um, attitudes about warfare that the that you've been discussing. I mean, I don't know that anybody that watched Game of Thrones could have any uh, mysteries in their mind about this. Yeah, they'll immediately throw down their arms and join the uh, the side that looks like they're winning. It's um, that's just part of the yeah. part of the attitude there. So yeah, I, I don't yeah I don't have any complaints. I just wanted to contribute that uh, that thing for well, people that care about kind of details. Yeah, that's why I asked. Thank you for being there. Okay, let me go back to Georgia. Georgia, I want to kind of drill down on this idea that we're in an epoch now of different consciousness, because I think this is a key, and I think we're seeing a few little indications that we might be onto something here. Go ahead. Well, it's the old idea that you can't ever fully put the toothpaste back in the tube, you know? Uh, we forget that it's it's been less than 100 years that here in these civilized Western countries, women didn't have the vote. If a woman married, her husband owned her clothes, her property, her name, her, her name, her children. I mean, you know, some things are slow in coming, and we're dealing with a civilization that, you know, is is still in the Middle Ages in many ways. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, how I have no doubt that this changed field will make a difference in what way and how fast that's going to be the question. What are some of the things you, I mean, one of the indicators to me that things are not going to be the same had to do with the Afghani, don't laugh now, folks, robotics team, Afghan, Afghanis, Afghanistan, fielded for the Olympics a team all made of women 
as brilliant robotics experts who've won competitions all over the world and are now outside of, of Kabul, and I think they're in Virginia, but they represented the nation state of Afghanistan, women on the world stage, and they were winning women. Yeah, and and it's going to be interesting to see how much of that is is the part that's leaving Afghanistan for the wider world and what's going to be left behind. What what percentage of that change is going to be left behind? That's what we we don't know at this point. One of the things I saw the other day in a news report was an interview with <clears throat> something which we're not used to, Taliban spokespersons, you know, holding press conferences, doing the normal kind of this is our pot, that kind of thing. And this oh, guy specifically, yeah, yeah, this guy specifically made reference that they want all these educated Afghans to stay home, to stay in Afghanistan, because the admittance was without them, we can't create the country. So if you have a precious resource and the resource comes with certain kind of demands or implicit demands, will that not automatically cause a conflict between the civil society folks and the religious society folks, and because we live in a physical world, if you can't create a country that's viable economically and socially, the religious people cannot persist. So is there not wiggle room here for interesting evolutionary changes of consciousness? Sure. And, and again, it's going to be this tug of war between the old religious positions. And, and this isn't just in Afghanistan, you know, this is, this is our culture around the planet. We're, we're at a time of, of, of change. We're at one of these hinge points and all of the old crystallized forms, whether they be political or religious or economic are going in for their last ditch effort. And uh, which ones are going to win is, you know, uh, what's in play right now. Rick, let me ask you an out-of-the-box question. In, in, in future weeks, I've been trying for a while, and I, I will succeed. I'm going to have somebody on, uh, first on epistemology. Remember we talked about I need to do a show on epistemology, and I'd like you to be part of that. The other show I want to do is with a representative from the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Back in the 1930s, after the huge depression, one of the people that FDR hired uh, out of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, I'm sorry, out of the Department of Commerce, turned out to be a brilliant economist who discovered all of these fascinating cycles in things that did not appear to be superficially related. And then some other folks in the foundation that, you know, became part of them over the, over the decades started looking at historical paths and episodes and frequency of recurrences and they came up with some very interesting papers uh, basically claiming that history itself is subject to these coherent cyclic changes and evolutions and reassertions where are you on the idea that history doesn't repeat but it should is could definitely rhyme but when it rhymes, it takes on new harmonics. So what we're going to see in this iteration is not what happened 20 years ago. 
Well, it's not going to be a replay of what happened 20 years ago because that happened 20 years ago. It could be similar. It's I think what you've got here is a Taliban whose leadership is more sophisticated, which is more media savvy, which is more international savvy. But the difference is between what is a – there are compromises that have to be made in securing power and in, in keeping, for instance, as you noted, competent people to, to run the machinery. All right? yep. Somebody's got to learn how to repair it. So you're going to have to it's, – it's a balance between – making practical compromises with people that you otherwise might not like or might not trust, but you need them. And then how long that will continue. I, you know, I, I don't, I think the, here's what I really come down to. This, this is the thing, what the Taliban are always saying, if you listen to this, is that they're going to run the country under Sharia law and that the relationship between men and women or the position of women in Afghan society will be according to Sharia law. So for anybody who's interested, what you should do is go out and look up what <laughs> Sharia law actually says about the status of women. Some of it is a little surprising. So, for instance, one of the things that it says is that women have the right to work and they have the right to keep their own earnings. Oh. Um, yes. So that, that, is, that is implicit in that they, they, they do have the right to work. They have the right to inherit um, oh. You know, I mean, Muhammad, Muhammad the prophet married a rich widow who had inherited her <laughs> dead husband's business. So he was no dummy. <laughs> no, he actually did really well for himself. He would never have to work again. But then he decided he wanted to become a prophet. The the key word in all of this, the 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 tricky word in Sharia is is that is this is an Arabic word which is kawamun which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. It's generally spelled Q-A-W-A-W-M-U-N, Kawamun. And what Sharia says is that men's, and the relationship of men and women, that men are Kawamun in comparison to women. And, and what the term roughly means is sustainer and protector. So it goes something like this, very simply. Under this sort of idea of responsibility to protect women and to see that they're fed and taken care of. But that then creates an obligation on the part of women to be obedient to men. So the Sharia gives women the right to work and the right to keep her earnings, the right to choose her husband. But it makes her testimony in court worth half that of a man, and it allows men to have four wives and women to have a and it allows women who violate the, the Kawamun, who do not show proper respect or obedience, to be punished hmm. physically in order to render them that way. Fascinating. So, what, Rick, one, what, I, one, I hate to say yeah, this, anyways, but we're out of time. We have run out of runway. Yeah. Hey, I want to thank all my <laughs> guests, those that appeared the entire three hours. Uh, Dr. Richard Spence, again, you've hit it out of the solar system. My friend Georgia Thanks. Lambert, my friend Ron Gerbron, we will be doing this again. Because the problem is not going away. It may get a lot more interesting. So until next week, same time, same bat channel. Third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.